This is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, your unofficially official Nosferatu after show. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Anna Hoagie. You know, I used to be a Rolls Royce enthusiast. Uh, forget about the Wraith. We're going to blow up Christmas land. Shit, man. Uh, nothing sexier than two good looking women packing, you know, Anfo in a bag ready to blow Hell some shit yeah. up. Hell Let's yeah. get it going. So, guys, welcome to Strong Creators Welcome. Uh, we're going to be doing a double episode. Hurricane Isaiah kind of wreaked havoc with us last week. So we brought you that special, unabridged uh, interview with Jonathan Langdon, which I hope you guys really enjoyed. But we are still talking about episode eight tonight, and we're talking about episode nine. And we have a fantastic, really far-ranging interview with property master and all things prop guru, Josh Meltzer, who is the property master for Nosferatu, shows like Dexter. Definitely stick around for the end of this episode for that interview, which is a whole episode in and of itself. What did you think about talking to Josh? I know he was one of the your favorite people that we were getting to talk to this season, Anna. Oh my gosh, what a perfect episode too to to be able to bring him on with with everything that we get to see in Christmas Land and and all the kids and the weapons and just oh all the gross stuff that they get to create and and also being able to see some of it on set you know in in front of me it, it's such an honor I'm really tickled so yeah definitely guys stick around for that interview because we go deep and talk about all kinds of great stuff it's definitely worth uh, the price of admission just letting us get through episodes eight and nine so you can skip ahead to that uh, last week's episode eight Christmas Queen was written by Megan. Austin Brown, a name we're all very familiar with as she's one of the staff writers for the show. But she also penned this season's episode four, The Lake House, along with episode four and eight, House of Sleep and Parnassus from season one. Last week's episode was uh, the second directed by Trisha Brock. She also directed episode seven, Cripple Creek. And then also coming up tonight, episode nine is written by Tom Brady, who is also a major writer on the show. He's penned episode five, Bruce Wayne McQueen earlier this season, along with season one's episode six, The Dark Tunnels and episode nine, Slay House. This week's Welcome to Christmas Land serves as the first of the two-episode block directed by newcomer Toa Frazier. He's had credits on shows like Penny Dreadful, Marvel's Daredevil, Into the Badlands, another great AMC show. So, Oh, my God. Not enough people watch that show. I, love, oh I was my God. a big fan of Into the Badlands. I, five minutes into the opening scene of Into the Badlands, and it fucking had a fan for life in me. I was so hooked. Same here. I had never seen a modern martial arts show, like a like an old style kung fu movie put on TV the way Into the Badlands did. Uh, definitely worth going to check out if you're looking for something to binge during quarantine times. So. And it's on AMC. So there you go. And listen, AMC doesn't produce shit, man. They put good stuff on TV. They're, they're one of those networks that across the board, their curation for great TV is uh, is pretty gold standard for me. Yeah, I've come to really trust their judgment, just the fact that they're behind Breaking Bad, which is, to me, pretty much the best television show that's ever been created. But it had five seasons to become that. So, you know, let's see what, what we can top it with. <laughs> 
All right, let's start out with uh, general thoughts on episode eight. The name of the episode is Chris McQueen. It should have been Chris fucking McQueen. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I, you. that's done, done for you. I have a note into the suggestion box at AMC's offices <laughs> to uh, post airing, rename the episode, even if it's with like F and then like asterisk, 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 you know, just so they can't, so they can't have the curse. Yeah, I mean, this episode really kind of was his bookend. And anytime you have someone starting with a flashback of a younger version of themselves, giving a very depressing, honest, heartbreaking eulogy for someone you know in their life it never spells good news for them when the episode's named after you and you're opening the episode at a eulogy i mean that's just fucking foreshadowing up the ass no yeah it it was pretty clear at that point from the beginning you know especially being a tv fan you know we look for those things so yes we sort of knew it was coming but it didn't at all take away from how heavy hitting it was and just how incredible the acting and writing was. I mean, basically this episode sort of was there to bring our characters to where they need to be, you know, physically in space to get them aligned and then also emotionally, you know, to kind of give them that last kick to get us to the final two episodes. Now, there's always a sense of a little bit of emotional manipulation when you have a setup like this, but I think you have to temper the feeling of the show is just fucking with my emotions just to give me a kick at the end so I feel it extra hard. And and in some ways, I think that's fair. I think a lot of shows do that. You know, they want to help you along on your journey of experiencing the show. If it's done well. But if it's done well, I don't mind. I mean, yeah. sometimes I'm emotionally manipulated by a show and it's so blatant. I feel more like I was, you know, like done up the ass in a bad way. But like it, sometimes if it's done well, you know, I, I, I sit back and like I really enjoyed that journey. And certain characters have a, a set journey. They have a yeah. starting point. They have an arc. And then they then then they conclude. And and I think the show did a really good job finishing the Chris McQueen story. Just just what we saw of him this season from how far he came from bad drunk dad in season one to his arc this year. And then in this episode, that flashback, that understanding his place of hurt and anger that you can now see kind of fueled his entire adult life. And his conversation with Vic at the very end about forgiveness and letting yourself off the hook because you have to or else you're never going to be able to function in this world. Him imparting those kind of final lessons, you could see it coming like a train in a tunnel, right? Yeah. What was going to happen. But but it felt like, yeah, okay, this is this is the end of his story. I'm okay with this. What, what was your general take on, on the Chris arc in this episode? That was exactly my take as well. I mean, we just, it felt right. It felt like we needed it. It felt like Vic needed it to grow. Both of them needed each other in these moments. I loved how, you know, they were talking about, you know, when she first got on her bike to basically abandon her family, it brought her to him. And, oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It's very emotional because, you know, I I also relate so much to Vic and to having, you know, another complex relationship with their father. So there's some of that of your own thing that gets drawn in to these characters when it's written so well, when they're acted so well, when they're so compelling. And I just really feel for Vic, especially in those final moments. But I also feel like, I mean, he, he didn't die for nothing. Like he, you know, claimed his dad did. And I think that's the final sort of takeaway. 
is that he saved her in order to have a chance of saving Wayne and stopping this horrible monster. So it's a payoff. And it is the kind of mission of, of parents, right, is is to give to your kids better than you feel like you got from your parents. And in the same way, be a better parent to your kids than you feel like your parents were to you. Exactly. And this episode really demonstrated that in, in a real bright way, just from that opening eulogy and, and, and how Chris is feeling to the sacrifice he makes at the end. I mean, you see his eyes working there at the end. He makes a choice to get Vic out of the way in exchange yeah. for himself. He knew it. Yeah, he knew it. And I don't think we can say enough about how strong Eben's acting was this whole season. But that's a four or five minute monologue he opens this episode with. That is tough under any circumstances, no matter what the I know. No matter what the topic is. That is a hard thing to do, given the emotional weight of what he's actually saying, the the emotion he has to be showing and demonstrating, the awkward vibe in the church as he's delivering this this very uncomfortable eulogy. That's fucking gold standard acting he's doing here. He he needs some Emmy love for this scene, uh, for sure. It's a career-defining moment I think he should have on his reel for probably the rest of his career. Oh, I agree. I mean, I thought that one scene, episodes back with him and Linda when they were talking together, and he was sort of very, very humble. Just seeing that range from, from that scene and then to this eulogy moment where it's just tense and, like you're saying, very uncomfortable and, and heartbreaking, and then to the bravery that he shows later and that toughness and that soldier mentality. Chris fucking awesome. I love Chris right. McQueen. I mean, I just, I love his arc so much. So it, it just all worked for me. It really did. One of the things we always say on the show, and I feel like we've said it a lot since we, you and I have been doing this podcast, is this is not just a one-note genre show. This show has depth to it. It has dramatic tension to it. It has great family drama to it it's not just a vampire story or a different kind of vampire story it's not just a horror show the show has range and eben is a great encapsulation of the range that this show has you know from that hospital scene to the eulogy to a sacrifice at the end but and 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 we can move into bing now that rage that just unhinged rage that he puts upon bing in the junkyard it was super violent in a way that makes you sit back on a show that has some real violent shit in it. Chris wailing on Bing was <sighs> to, almost to a disturbing degree. What was your take on on, uh, on on that scene with him? Did you think he was going to kill Bing like outright? I almost did. I mean, it didn't seem like he was going to stop and it was extremely uncomfortable brutality. I really like how it was shot because you saw it in Vic's face you know, some of what we didn't see. And then when he went for that metal thing that was sticking out of Bing and just was like leaning his whole weight on it. <sighs> yeah, that, that was harsh. That was one of the hardest moments of the show, maybe, because it was so visceral and so brutal and so unexpected kind of in that moment to me. The scene as a whole sets off a tension, an unfortunate tension between Vic and Chris that will last really until the end of the episode, un until until the very last moments of Chris's life. Which is sad because those two had really found each other again as a parent and daughter should. 
the way Vic has reconnected with Chris and Linda this season is the way you would hope she had grown up her entire life, but I guess better late than never. So it's unfortunate that their last day together is spent with this tension of her, her kind of blaming Chris for letting his rage overtake him to the expense of maybe getting to Wayne in time. I understand where he's coming from, but obviously I, I also feel for Vic too. But but let's stay on Bing. Does his whole arc here, what happens to him in the junkyard, the pathetic nature in the police station, did, did any of this end up making you feel sympathetic for Bing or make him feel like he was redeemable in any way? It definitely played with me. I mean, I'm still so uncomfortable with him and his character. So, you know, it's it's hard to kind of buy into this sort of puppy dog don't you want to just be my friend now? Can't you just forgive me? Attitude. I mean, my God, the horrors that he's committed. He might need to kind of rot for a while, I think, personally. Did you feel a little sympathy kind of mixed in there for him? There is a there is a part of me that thinks that had Charlie Manx not come into Bing's life, Bing would not have done any of the atrocious things he's done in the last decade in the show's timeline or eight years plus in the show's timeline. Sure, sure. I agree with that. But Megs didn't really twist his arm too, too much. And so the ease with which he grabbed that gas mask the very first time and went to work and hasn't stopped working, it's more that Charlie didn't convince him to do this than Charlie enabled and awakened these things in him already. And so from that point of view... No, not sympathetic. But when he talks about, and, and I was I was wondering if this would come up again, you know, Bing and Vic being face-to-face and talking about how they used to trade comic books. They used to be friends, you know? That is a real emotional touchdown because before this all happened, you got the impression that they were actually, you know, maybe not best friends, but they were both kind of outcasts in that high school world. And so their share of comic books and those discussions, you, you did get the impression that there was an understanding of, of each other back in the day before all of this began. And, and, yeah. and so I'm sad for that loss, that kind of innocence loss. But again, I don't think Charlie made Bing who he is. I think he just awakened in Bing who he is. And so, no, exactly. not really redeemable. I don't think that's something you could put back in a box. It's always there. It's uh, Once it's unleashed, I don't know that you could put it back in a box. Not at this point, but it was really great to see there was the conflict, too, on, on Vic's face. You could see her, you know, there was a, that slight, uh, he's uh, he kind of messing with her a little bit there, too, with, with exactly that appeal to that outcast nature, you know, the geeks who bond together kind of thing. But yeah, you could also see and feel that seething rage just right under that surface too. So again, really great scene, really, really excellently played by by both of them. For someone who is as angry and post-goth as uh, Vic is, she has tremendous stores of empathy and patience and love for people. And not not love like I, you know, like you love your best friend, but love for like, not wanting there to be pain in the world. Like the only pain she exactly. ever really wants to inflict is upon herself. You know, she doesn't really have any outward desires to hurt people. Even her worst enemies, I think make her struggle to pull the trigger a bit. And I think that's really a credit to Ashley's portrayal of Vic. So yeah, she's definitely susceptible to the, to the appeals to, we used to be friends kind of line of questioning because that exists in her heart. You know, that was, that that was something that was real for her way back when. It's just that so much has happened now, you really can't put it all under a rug. Speaking of uh, tragic relationships, let, let's get to Tabitha and Maggie oh. because, oh. I mean, these two, damn, 
damn, damn, damn, damn, damn, damn. Mm-mm. It was so clinical in a way that the scene in, in the SUV, but yeah. also heart wrenching. Also, what's your feeling? Do do these two need to break up given where they stand? Given that you know the ultimatum laid down in the Hourglass Man episode, and obviously uh, uh, Tabitha's feeling that she can't let it be. She she's not okay with Maggie being who she is. Do these two need to break up? Does that make sense to you? I think she's scared. I think she's really scared because of what's happening and that these are supernatural forces. You know, she's kind of having to keep the FBI busy while Vic can do her thing because I think at this point she understands that these kind of supernatural people need to deal with this supernatural shit. I think that's it's terrifying because, I mean, really, when you think about it from Maggie's perspective, it's it's sort of uh, hypocritical in a way. I mean, Tabitha is running around risking her life to keep people safe. Why can't Maggie use her gift to help keep people safe? They both have to pay a cost. They both have to risk something. They both have to risk themselves. And I don't think, you know, I think Tabitha getting her badge back. I think that's like conflicting with how she feels. I don't think it's what she wants to do. You could see it in her face. Ashley Romans does such a great job showing the pain, you know, in her face underneath there, but trying to just also be supportive and be like, be free. I want you to be happy. You know, I think she's just scared. I really do. I guess we'll have to see. <laughs> I think I agree. I think she's scared, but I do think there's a little bit of a double standard here. That's what I mean by being hypocritical about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. But, and I, but but not even really trying to hide it. I think no. it's very much I'm okay risking my life in the way I, I, I do my job as a law enforcement. But but almost like not I want to say queer shaming, but almost like shaming Maggie for being willing willing to hurt herself using this gift that doesn't conform to something that Tabitha is comfortable about. It's actually a really bad look on Tabitha yeah. having that feeling. It really is. And and you're right. I think Ashley Romans does a fantastic job of playing the conflict. You see it all on her face. It's all of, you know, the I don't want to do this. I'm betraying how my heart really feels, but my brain is just driving the bus here. It's it's really uncomfortable and it's really sad that it has to work out this way. And I feel like that's how Maggie takes it. Listen, Maggie is, you know, she is a tough cookie. She has survived worse than a breakup uh, with a fantastic woman like Tabitha. She'll be fine in a way, if not a little bit destructive to herself. But you see that she doesn't really believe that this is going down like this. Yeah, it's definitely a kind of a look of huge disbelief and and almost like yeah you, you have the nerve really like this is the, what you're doing like and, and and like you're saying it's 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 a it's a shaming it's like you're not normal quote unquote i want normal i want real i don't understand this so it's not normal and it's 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 a bad look just like you said really bad look i hope it doesn't stick i hope that this that they, they fix this yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like the kind of thing where at least there's going to be some amazing, you know, breakup sex or something. But does it stick? It's definitely a relationship that could come back together as easily stay apart. They're in a sticky limbo section right now. Let's talk about two people who actually don't get a lot of alone time together. Let's talk about Lou and Maggie and their time in the sleigh house ornaments of creepiness. One, just as a threshold matter, what's your take on Lou and Maggie being together? These These two rocks for Vic kind of coming together without her there. I don't know that that's really happened yet this season. 
No, they've not really had any moment, just the two of them on screen. And it was kind of, it was nice. Can you know, so they had this quiet moment, both of them looking at the, the ornaments up in the trees, both of them thinking, and Lou just coming out like, I don't want to lose Wayne, you know? I mean, he's just bearing his heart right away to Maggie. And, you know, I love how supportive she is. Just right away, you won't, we're going to get him back. He's still your son. It was just a really nice moment. Really, really nice moment. How did you feel about when she used her gift, though? What was that? When souls fall. Ooh, cryptic. Well, so here's the thing. Usually having read the book makes me really enjoy the story more, right? Because it provides background sure, and, and right. context that maybe gets omitted from the show. Because I know the book and and a plot point related to this, I was like, oh, I know what that means. And I'm glad that they are kind of sticking to it. Obviously, I think <laughs> yeah. that's what it means. But it was cool to see it play out like this prophecy. It was a nice twist on a plot yeah. line that we already knew from the book. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And I actually got to see that, that set area, which is really neat. It's, it's actually really kind of small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell um, us about it. Did they have trees and set up and the ornaments and stuff hanging? It's, it's a real tree farm. So, I mean, it's, it's real trees that they're, you know, hauling everything back into and just covering the trees and ornaments. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a small little area and, and they're kind of running around and, and doing things right on this one farm. And it's actually right down this dirt road from where the ruins are for the sleigh house. So it is conveniently close to that location too. So yeah, it's really neat to see some of the stuff on screen that I saw shot that day. I, I'm so jealous of you. You got to see so much cool stuff for your uh, your set visit that covered the these final two. But it covered two of the final episodes. I, I, I am perpetually jealous of you. Well, way to bring up a fresh wound and rip off a scab. And make oh, no. <laughs> it's just so, I mean, it's experience of a lifetime. And I've been waiting so long to be able to talk about, you know, these scenes. So... Like literally, like a year you've been waiting. I, you know? Basically, <laughs> yeah. I, saw, I signed my NDA and everything. So. <laughs> and so the morning, it was more shooting parts of episode 10. And at night, it was more parts of episode 9. But speaking of that ornament forest, what did you mm -hmm. think about Millie and her yelling you know, out to hearing Vic? What did you think about her little reveal and everything going on there? That was kind I of wild. This. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is the start. This is the start of a culmination of Millie's Endgame that we've kind of been building to all season. That really pays off in a dramatic way in episode nine, which we saw tonight. I love that she's thinking outside the box. I love that she's going around her father here. Not that you know she's being a rebellious kid, but that she's thinking for herself. That she's taking charge of her life. That she's looking to cut a deal with Vic. More interesting question is: Does Vic keep her promise? I mean. Even devil kids are apt to believe adults when adults make promises until uh -huh. they have a reason not to believe the adult. Uh, but, yeah. you know, yeah, but it's the question of does the adult make the promise in good faith? Is is Vic just saying what she needs to here or or is this something that she will really try and go through with? I don't know. It's it's hard to think because you know how much Millie has kind of been a pain in her ass too, you know, and I think she's just saying anything right now to try and get Wayne back. But I do also think it's interesting that Millie does seem still concerned for the other kids too. I mean, she does kind of say like everybody here is going to die if you kill Charlie Manx. And, and it, that ties back into, you know, Maggie's concern. She's, she's the kind of other person here that is concerned about these other children because it's not their fault they're demons i mean is it really not right. really no no i mean you could never blame the innocents right it's um they they are literally what they've been made 
against their will. You know, even even Millie, who wanted to go to Christmas Land, didn't understand what that really entailed. It not not no. until her mother lays it out for her does she really begin to understand. You know, think imagine if everyone, every kid in Christmas Land, had their own crackle face Cassie to to give it to them straight about what happened to them. I think you would have a lot of rebellion in Christmas Land if people if the kids really understood. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Our other main ghoul child, oh. Wayne. Oh man, <laughs> I, this little bastard. Uh, they, I mean, oof. I mean, he is he is impish. He's a little stinker. He is a little <laughs> stinker. He is full demon now. Did you expect him to come around to Lou when they have when they kind of come face to face, or did you expect him to be all bitey bitey? A little bit bitey bitey, yeah. I think at that point, I mean, just the way he was just kind of singing his Christmas music. Still, no footwear, people. Still no shoes. Shoes for Wayne too. Hashtag. Even little demons need <laughs> shoes. I'm just saying. Can we please? But yeah, when he bit bit right into Lou's shoulder, I was like, dag on. I mean, I knew he would get bitey, but I didn't think he would be like literally trying to take a chunk out of dad. You know, I thought he would kind of go after Maggie, maybe, right. but not dad, right. you know? Yeah, you, you almost felt like, you know, the, the bond between him and Vic and Lou would be almost inviolable, no matter how bad he had gotten. But I mean, look, Billy ate her mom to death in the wraith. Uh, without Ooh. much hesitation. And I think we've seen that the bond between Wayne and Vic is stronger than the bond between Lou and Wayne, whether it's because it's a, a biological issue or what. The few interactions that we've seen them all together, I think on the supernatural plane, the Wayne-Vic bond has been has been a bit stronger. I, it was very disappointing to see, but also kind of felt right when it happened. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I was, was nodding fun. my head. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was nodding my head. I was like, yep. Yep, that's exactly what's supposed to happen there. I mean, Lou, to his credit, he's a he's a pretty roll with it kind of guy, you know. Yeah, he's so, like, oh yeah, Wayne did this. <laughs> let, let's go down to the planting of the bombs and oh, man. this this final scene with Vic and Chris. It, it leads to a discussion about forgiveness. What was your takeaway from the chat? Once they plant the bombs, they have nothing to do but wait for Manx to come along in the wraith. Do they get to a place of healing? Does Vic really forgive her father in the end? Well, you hope so. I mean, at this point, I think I think maybe yes. You know, by the time all is said and done, I loved that line that he says to her, you know, if you don't let yourself off the hook, you'll just hang there forever. You know, I've also felt to some degree that her anger at him is also, you know, anger at herself for the things that she sees in herself that are like him, where she's sort of taken after his life. That's, you know, makes it really complex. You know, where's the line between self-hatred and hating the just reflection of your your own father this person who helped make you so it's, it's really deep and just heartbreaking because you know in the end he does he does give himself for her do we have to just keep talking about it can't we can't we just like talk about everybody getting puppies or something please <laughs> can't we just like do like a fan edit where where the final scene is is manx leaning over and he gives chris a puppy and then everybody gets yeah. puppies. Please, can't we? Yes. The wraith turns into a unicorn and uh, rainbows come out of its butt. Something but it like still that. keeps its disco alarm system, which I was very impressed hey, with. listen. I mean, <laughs> say what you want. I was like, want. damn. <laughs> say what you want about Charlie and selling Cassie's baubles in order to afford the wraith. 
But bitch got the souped up package. It came with a disco alarm. Dude. It came with it came with auto start, which in the cold Colorado winters, you definitely want the car to be able to start by itself, just fueled by a little it children's soul. Steers I on mean, a pinky. I mean, the way he was avoiding those bombs that that thing is souped up. I mean, all it needs now is some yeah. curb feelers, some fuzzy dice. We're yeah. ready. Can can yeah. I buy? Can I buy it now? Production? Anybody? Right. I- this is uh, <laughs> I, the, 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 the merchandise possibilities for Nosferatu are <laughs> off the chart. If there was a limited 2021 Rolls Royce Wraith, you know, Nosferatu edition. <laughs> oh man! It comes with some like you know Christmas ornaments hanging from the rearview mirror or something like that. <laughs> comes with dead butterfly wings and the Yes, in the little hatch with the worm inside. Oh man! Yeah, it's a little, a little, a little hidey hole hatch that gives you candy canes and ornaments. Yes, 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 yes. This final conversation between between Vic and Chris was was really important because you know, just like you said, that she sees you know so much of what she's become in him, uh, like following his path. He sees it too, and you know, he's giving a real. I, I think as much as. He's talking to himself about the need for forgiveness and, and, you know, if you don't let yourself off the hook, you'll just hang in there forever. He's really talking to her as a mother here. He's not really talking. I really don't think he's talking to her as his daughter. He knows what she's putting herself through as Wayne's mom. You know, again, it's it's one of those things where you want to be able to pass along better than you got or, or better than you received, you know, advice-wise and love-wise. And they lost so many years together. You know, they lost all the time of him becoming a better man and, and going into recovery and, and living a dry, sober life. They didn't have that time together. She never got to know that Chris McQueen. Not really. And so... This is a great final conversation for them because it will be the last impression she has of her father in this world. That's the best you could hope for as final, as far as final impressions go. You know, when we talk about, you know, final words, if you're standing on the roof and you're going to jump into a pool and you say, I'm a golden god, those are in great final words, you know, if you watch one <laughs> was famous. But, you know, advising your daughter to make sure you love yourself as well yeah. as others and you forgive yourself as well as you forgive others, that's yeah. really important advice to hear. And and just a great sort of reflection on purpose and, and fulfillment of one's purpose because, you know, you, you've got a reflection of this, this father who, you know, wanted to be a musician and, and had this other ambition, this creative ambition that he didn't get to fulfill. You know, obviously wants his daughter to be able to do what she's meant to do and be for someone who felt like his life wasn't probably going to amount to anything, just like his own dad, in the end, we find out. His life meant everything. His life, you know, was was there to save hers. Oh, it gives me chills. So at the end of the day, episode eight, it becomes a very important episode because of the table setting it does for episode nine and episode 10. You know, in a lot of ways, episode nine is a real season finale episode. And obviously, you guys haven't seen episode 10 yet. I think when you do, I think you'll agree episode 9 and episode 10 work together as kind of a two-part season finale. Yeah. Episode 8 really sets the table. It does the work that a a penultimate episode usually does. You know, it puts all the players into their final positions for the the big final showdowns that you're looking for. That's where we are when we end episode 8. You have to give the episode a lot of credit for that. It's just smart narrative storytelling as part of an episode of an overall season to get us there right when we need to be there you know we're, we're we're all climaxing at all the right times and and god that's the best thing you could always hope for 
<laughs> just a little shout out. It's been a long quarantine and it a, has. a real, a real uh, long stare uh, at the four walls alone. I, I just want to real quick because we skipped over it before, but I meant to say it. It was a great point you and I talked about a little bit beforehand was uh, some more lore building when Bing is in the interrogation room and he starts dropping stories about where they can, you know, intercept Manx and Wayne. Yeah. Letting us know about the stop at Sleigh House to hang your ornament before the final procession into Christmas Land. How many times we've seen kids come into Christmas Land now? That's a great little piece of information to really fill in the picture and bring the ornament tree forest from the book outside of Sleigh House into the story in a really great way. 100% love that uh, whole sort of opening ritual that they that they have to go through. It's like a bar mitzvah for devil children. It's, yeah. uh, you know, a real final rite of passage to, to being coming a ghoul kid. It's almost like you're leaving like your last vestige of your soul. You are leaving your last vestige of your human soul in that ornament. It's it, well, I mean, it's like so many things where you have to, you know, go from one uh, one plane to another and you have to leave behind you have to shed your worldly possessions or who you were you have to leave that behind to become something new that's what the ornament forest is i mean it just metaphor wise it's a great metaphor for the transformation that the kids are about to complete that they've been working on in the wraith this entire trip and now they're about to take that final step and this is the last process i love it i love it it's a great it's a great addition to the specific lore of the show and the novel yeah i, I was really really happy just so, you know with a couple sentences they really added something uh to, yeah to the show and the whole bat ornament itself and how it ties into vampires and you know mm -hmm. like you're saying that transformation where you've got to die and then you're sort of reborn as this creature and that's you know completely the symbolism that they're using here and, and playing with that vampire lore as well and bats and everything it's just it's so fun everything sort of ties together nicely but yeah this is kind of like what we've been waiting for for about two years like I, I guess you know getting to see major major Christmas land and a confrontation you know if you're rope drop people at disney and you want to be the first one to see disneyland or disney world and in all of its glory because you've only just been able to look from the gates this is what this episode episode nine is really you finally get to come inside the park and see what it's all about and it's fucking beautiful it's massive it is gorgeous it is the forced perspective of the oversized letter blocks and the giant <laughs> tree and the first way it's and the, the the eternal ice maze everything is so oh, over the top yes it was breathtaking it was it just stylistically design wise just it is breathtaking to behold this episode every department sets lighting effects props everybody everything is at the top of its game because this is what you know sort of the story builds to is this amazing inscape and vic getting in there and and trying to trying to take manx down and get her son back you know, I, I really love this episode, too, because we get to see a lot of work from wardrobe and hair and the makeup team with, you know, all the demon kids and their costumes. One of my favorite things about visiting the set that day back in it's like mid-December. I had the pleasure of meeting Jason David's stunt double, this lovely spit buyer of a soul named Molly Miller. Hi, Molly! And I got to see, like, their makeup really up close. So they've got, you know, this frosting in their hair with these little pieces of ice chunks, you know, stuck in. And the veins are airbrushed on the sides of the face and the skin. It looks completely real. 
that was really fun to see. And then, you know, I wanted to touch on again how, you know, I think we talked brought it up last week, Mr. Joel Harlow's incredible makeup effects work because we get to see Cassie again and we get to see Manx transform again. You know, we get to see his old ass crusty mank self ready to do his improv um sorry you guys got to listen to last week's interview with jonathan langdon to get that one but we also mentioned <laughs> the um contacts lens work that the you know because the actors have to wear these lenses when they're in these different makeup situations and how really just so much unique work goes into just the eyes on the show for one thing the lenses themselves are actually hand painted by this amazing artist named Christina Patterson. She works with Mr. Harlow on Evil as well. So if you know George the Demon, you know George Love the Demon, George right? Love George the Demon. George the, George the sexy demon, the oversexy Oh my gosh, yes. Those eyes, those crazy glowing eyes. I mean, those are, those are just like painted lenses. Those are her work. Um, Is that a C-section scar? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you also I completely have... threw you off your game yeah, just there. Yeah, you did, and I you did. It. I started to think about, I don't like, even the, apologize for the 500 and some questions yep. or however many it is. <laughs> and I'm suddenly seeing a finger, like, laying on her... Oh, my God, such hot Crossover. Uh, y'all, yes. wait, y'all wait until we start doing the evil podcast. It's going to blow your mind. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, yes, these guys have to wear these crazy painted lenses. There also has to be an actual contact lens technician to oversee the safety of, you know, the actors having to put these things in their eyeballs and to make sure their eyes are properly taken care of, and that's done by our friend Zach Ripps. And this team is just really so critical to the show because i mean this is a, a story where you have the the main heroine whose eye bleeds whenever she uses her supernatural gifts so every time you see her eye is not completely normal looking every time it's red or teary and bloody that is the work of these talented people all sort of collaborating behind the scenes to bring her iconic cost to life for us so it's kind of amazing you wouldn't i, I didn't even know before i uh, watching the show that so much work goes into just you know the contact lens work and and, and the eye yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I had had no idea. But when you look at it, when you think about what this show does, just just down to the details of the contact lenses. But like you said, the makeup, the costumes. Look at the scene where all the kids are gathered and they're all calling out these horrible games to play from like Stick the Blind and, you know, it's not even Scissors for the Drifter. What's the other? Carve the Goose. Um, (laughs) Jesus Christ. And they're all like in those costumes that sort of look like they were probably people that were killed there. Like the girl who's got... Sheriff Bly's um, badge on. She's like, I want to play a cop and Robert. Like, oh, the, or the creepy ass, the creepy ass twins. Straight, I love the twins. Straight out of the with the shining, the shining. Jesus yes, the shining oh, twins <laughs> with oh, their like man. forks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's I mean, some great every, stuff going on. None of on. that happens by accident. You know, this show is a great reminder that none of that happens by accident. You know, you have the writers. Everyone gives them credit. You have the directors. Everyone gives them credit. You have the cast. Everyone really gives them credit because you see them up front. They're literally in front of the camera. But the costume designers, the the makeup artists, the, the lens technicians, the the property masters, the, the stuff that Josh does. Like every every weapon those kids are brandishing, you know, that's all Josh and his team. It, there's There are so many people that are vital, not like useful, not like helpful, but vital to making this show as exciting and dynamic to watch. They all deserve a major, major round of applause. 
guys, every little detail, I mean, everything is, is, is created, every ornament, they're, they're painting, they're glittering, they're doing all these things, they're assembling, you know, all these sets, you know, <laughs> the games in the background with the, like, the mix of prizes where it's like the crusty stuffed animals, but also severed limbs, you know, <laughs> I mean, all these little things, like, you could, you can keep watching this episode over and over again and catching so many awesome, disgusting, wonderfully twisted details. I, I hope everybody had fun creating these things as much as I had fun, like seeing it come to life, especially. Let's jump into it too, because there's a great example of the work done here in the detail is you get wide eyed demon Wayne coming into Christmas land and Charlie, because Millie is not around and Zach Quinto does some great Spock raised eyebrow acting this entire episode. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But when he, when he files away that Millie's not around to lead Wayne to give him a tour and he says, Oh, father Christmas will do it. And he he takes him in a costume shop. (laughs) All of the costumes just hanging on the rack there, including then the Manx NASA uh, jacket that Wayne actually takes. The, the detail in that, if you freeze frame any frame of that scene, your eyes are just going to have a feast of detail. It's fantastic. Yeah, there's so many different things, but I think definitely, like, instead of NASA, it says Manx on it. It does. That's it does, pretty yeah. damn clever, you know? Yeah, and it, really but it's done clever. in the same style and the exactly. lettering. And so, yeah, it's so great. It's so great. What did you think of this scene? And this was this was really, in a lot of ways, the Manx really finally closing the deal on this most difficult of children to get to Christmas land when he gets when he gets Wayne to sign his name Wayne Manx instead of Wayne McQueen it mm. really feels it really feels like planting the sold sign right outside the house right i felt this giant crusty claw like wrap around me in that scene it just he had his grip that was it Wayne like signed over his soul you know so that was the feeling I had it was just oh and then to see all those other names in all the different handwritings all with the last name Manx the oh, slow pull out oh, was so the, uh, the yeah. slow, I watched that scene a couple times because I was trying to see if there was any obvious Easter egg names yeah, there yeah. I couldn't come up with them but, but watching it over and over again was really really actually depressing and, and dispiriting because it's so representative of so much lost innocence and families destroyed like every one of those kids represents a family destroyed it represents a child (laughs) taken too soon um and the way the camera pulls out from the book and you see the names just keep going and the list is just filled Mm -hmm. chock full it it was so well done so impactful and and what a way to um cut to the opening credits right that's where they i think they cut right from there into the opening credits yeah i think so it was Uh, yeah just a really dynamic scene it was so so good yeah, but it really is Charlie. Really, Charlie's doing a little victory dance there. There's a lot of Charlie. And until he's not, Charlie is gloating this whole episode. He is, oh, yes. He is Charlie Manx victorious this whole fucking episode. It was a little sickening to watch, but also it was great. I mean, Zach was just was just swimming in the river of of over the topness uh in this episode and it was great to watch yeah he was chewing some scenery and, and really you could tell he was just having a blast because again yeah. this is yeah. this has been what we've been building this story mm-hmm. to and 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 just ready to have so much fun with with these moments where he gets to be full on manx 100 right. you could have a final confrontation between manx and Vic in a lot of places. The story is touch. You could have it at the lake. You could have it in Haverhill. You could have it in Gun Barrel. You could have it at the House of Sleep. 
you could have it in a lot of places, but the only one that really feels satisfying is to have the final confrontation in Christmas land on Charlie's home turf. It really ups the stakes, but it really makes it also feel like you're playing for real, real consequences by having it here. I thought. So then when we see Vic and Maggie, you know, riding off into the shorter way, how big of a squeal did you let out when you saw the word Christmas land written in green on the inside of that bridge? I think it was, I think it was 4.30 in the morning. I heard it. 5 a.m. in the morning. I was screen capping it while I was watching the episode and I sent it to you just the cropped Christmas land in green with like a bunch of squeeze. Uh, I, I was, I, and I still have it on my phone. Uh, this is several weeks ago at this point. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty fucking psyched for it. I, yeah. I, I am well on record that the green, the green neon paint inside the shorter way is one of my favorite details of the show. And so seeing it say Christmas land was just, it, it's a wallpaper everyone needs on their phones, by the way. So, yeah, definitely. Oh, and yeah. also, you know, it was cool because that was another thing that I got to see that, that night on the set was part of the bike stunt work for this moment where Vic and Maggie are riding through the ornament forest. Yeah, I got to see all the work that really goes into just, I guess, what was just a few seconds on the screen. I mean, you know, I got to meet the incredibly kind, wonderful stunt coordinator, Mr. Al Goto, and got to see really just a simple shot from the side of the bike riding through these trees. And all that it involved, I mean, just when the camera need to be needed to be lowered, you know, just a little bit so that you could get the rest of the actors' heads in the screen. I mean, it took like an entire team of people and like an hour just to, you know, readjust the camera and get it level. And there's all these different parts. And I mean, I personally am just absolutely fascinated with that kind of stuff. So I, I just ate it up the whole time, seeing them like, you know, adjusting where they place the trees and pumping in the smoke and just all this coordination, all of these people involved for literally a few seconds of what we get to see of them zooming by. Amazing. Just, it takes your breath away. When they finally emerge into Christmas land and the shorter way dumps them out by the back lot kind of, of Christmas land, as someone watching the show who, who is invested in all of this, because we're, we're really seeing it for the first time from an outsider's point of view by seeing it from Maggie and Vic's point of view what what was your take on christmas land as they showed it to them i wanted to weep openly it's so beautiful <laughs> it's so vast it's just i loved the endless coasters and lights in the background i mean in the blocks and everything i loved that they really did try to show that it's almost this endless you know massive landscape and i and i even love how you know maggie and vic kind of bring it up like he's had decades to be building this place in his mind so you get the idea that it really just goes on forever and i, I just thought the effects really were cool i just want to be there i just want to go there honestly at this point it's so neat so walt disney when he started purchasing land in florida using uh secret shell companies because he didn't want it to leak that Disney was buying up all of this property in the uh, Orlando surrounding area. The Disney company owns hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe like thousands of acres of land in Florida. Disney World itself, and if you've ever been to Disney World, Disney World is a massive place. When you combine the parks, the hotels, everything yep. that everything that's within the Disney World complex is huge. 
it is only about a fraction. It is, I think it's like 24%, 25%. It's a very, it's, it's a relatively small fraction of the amount of land that Disney actually owns in Florida for the purpose of one, keeping out the world, but two, so they could expand for a long time. Oh man, yeah. That's how Christmas Land really seemed to me. It seemed like it had the potential to expand forever because just in that shot where they have the force perspective and the the building blocks are so large against Maggie and Vic and you just see you see the park go on forever and then you get that overhead shot of the uh, eternal maze later and that seems to go on literally eternally it it just seemed it was full of endless dark dangerous potential it it was really impressive it was it was an impressive shot in in showing us the scope of Charlie Minx's mind, you know, and, and how oh, powerful yeah. he is. Oh, and another great thing I, I love seeing was um the uh the tree, the great tree of severed heads. That's that's a great callback to an iconic cover of the Wraith comic. So it's an illustration that our friend C. P. Wilson the third did that they've kind of brought to life and combined with the advent calendar videos that um AMC's sort of been using as marketing this season. They sort of combine that whole idea with this sort of advent calendar tree of severed heads. So getting to see that be created for us and come to life was a really big treat too. I mean it's just just all the big things that you know you wanted to see in Christmas land. I think they really did a great job of giving us. When Charlie and Wayne first get out of the car and Charlie learns Millie isn't there, we as adults see it flit across his face that that's not cool. And he definitely, you know, puts that away. But he has he has work to finish with Maine, right? He with Wayne. He has to finish uh, sealing the deal with Wayne Manx. But you know, it was not going to be very long before he chased down his daughter and figured out what is going on. Yeah. Skipping ahead from the maze conversation, where she first gives like the the signs of defiance, I really want to get to because yeah. for me, I think this was maybe my favorite part of the episode. Definitely. She takes she takes him to his house of fears. Oh. Tell me what you thought of this. What what was your impression of him coming into this house, which I think we can say now for sure, he had no idea existed. He did not know. He was so shocked. And you could see it on his face where he's remembering this place and he's not liking remembering this place. He has no idea how that place got there. It was kind of neat because Millie was just like totally comfortable with it, smiling mm-hmm. like while she's there, like kind of like you got to come and see dad, you know, and he is just up against the wall, almost like yeah. not able to Terror. move. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And Zachary Quinto, like, like, like I agree with you. I think this, this little part might've been my favorite part of the episode. His physical performance alone in this whole part inside of his house of fears is incredible. It just, it had me along for the whole ride. We've seen panic on Charlie's face. You know, when, when he talks to Millie earlier in the season and he hears that there's the white static is coming and, and, and you know, and he says, I'll be, I'm on my, I'm on my way. Like you see panic in his face. We've seen him worried, concerned. We've never seen him terrified. Terrified. Yes. Up against the wall, could not, could not press himself up against the wall when Even Tim, tr- yes. when Mr. Tim calls <laughs> out from the room, he basically shits his pants. I mean, I think if you oh check the trolley's drawers, his his hundred sixteen year old poop would be hanging out in his pants. He is fucking terrified of yeah. everything in this house that that moment especially fucked with him too you could see it i mean he kept it on his face even as he's like getting around that door he's still like 
kind of recognizing what that's all about and remembering that part right. of his life. Oh, you know, as right. he's going into his wife's bedroom at the same right. time. And, and all and of it's this. dawning on oh. him. Yeah. When, oh. he goes to the cl- when he goes to the closet, you're right, you're, he's still processing Mr. Tim when he, when he stumbles into the room because Millie wants to show him in there. And he's still processing it. And then he's only kind of processing what the clothes represent in the closet when Crackleface comes in and oh. fuck, she lays into him like a <laughs> boss. And I was like, go girl, go girl. This you was know, the I, best. Yeah. This was so good. And just her delivery of the lines and the way that she spoke with this confidence and this biting take him down tone, which, you know, I mean, it was basically the same kind of takedown that he gave Vic outside Parnassus when they had that confrontation earlier in the season. Oh my God. I loved that whole metaphor of dancing where she's like, Mm -hmm. you know, you Mm -hmm. were sure it was your role to lead, but all you did your whole life was spin us in circles and trip over your own feet. You know, if we were like a failure as a driver and a farmer and a husband and a father and oh shit. Not not to be crass about it, but she completely cucks him in the scene and it's oh kind God. of fun to watch. But he yeah, when she it. manhandles him, when she mm. he doesn't know what to do. He is he is knocked back on his feet this entire <gasps> scene. Even when he lashes out, it's so limp feeling. Yeah. He, he, it doesn't have any of Charlie's normal fire. When she manhandles in him into dancing, she she takes like two <laughs> giant leap forward. Yes. She's, she's so tiny compared to him looking. And and she just starts whipping him around. She brings up her father, you know. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Know, even, he paid for the dance lessons, which is a metaphor for all the shit that her father paid for. Exactly. Yeah, oh my it's god. So great. Such great writing. It is the cup up and Charlie really needs and, and Cassie really just gives it to every all she has had a century to stew on this moment. Oh <laughs> man, yeah. Even when she starts, when he doesn't really know what's happening and she says, Come on, Charlie, you know I've always been in the back of your mind, you know. Yes, 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 yes. What did you think about Millie watching all of this and going to her mother's <sighs> side when forced to choose? Mom made sense. I mean, she basically laid it out. If your dad loves you, he'll get you out of here because we cannot exist here. We do not exist here. Your father turned us into these things and is keeping you from having a life. And Millie, Millie's like begging him, like, you know, either take me somewhere else or stay here as a family. Do the fatherly thing. Take me, keep me safe, you know, before Vic kills us. It's it's really powerful. And again, another, I think, really huge moment that kind of seals the deal for, for Millie and, and sort of what we see her do later on. Yeah, I mean, she, she kind of hesitates at the veil later on, but she only hesitates. Her decision is really made up in this scene, I think. Yeah, even before she talks to her dad later, you know, I think it's this scene that really seals it. She finally gets to see her two parents hashing it out. You know, she she's obviously heard her father's version of life her entire life. You know, she has spent some time with her mother now and, and heard about the things that her father denied her from her mother. The worst thing in, like, family in, in families where the parents fight all the time is when the kid watches it and the kid is aware of it and absorbs it. Millie is getting that, but it, it's almost necessary for her to see because she's kind of a judge weighing the two arguments here. Crackleface Cassie just makes the better argument for the judge, which is Millie. If this scene in her bedroom is a battle for Millie's soul, I I think you have to say Crackleface is the one who walks away the victor. 
We're actually going to leave Christmas Land for a second because I want to take us to Slay House and the Ornament Forest and Tabitha and Lou are, yes. hanging out, are, are hanging out together. I mean, Jonathan Langdon's finally getting to hang out with some other, you know, people in the cast. You know, it's not just Wayne and uh, Vic anymore. I think you were on set for this scene? I was. This was another scene that was done at night. It was actually kind of done in the same exact area where the bikes were like driving through. So it's amazing, like also how they can use one location in so many different ways and you don't even, you know, really know you're in the same spot. But yeah, basically, um, I was, I got to kind of be a fly on the wall. I got to kind of hear Jonathan and Ashley go over their lines a little bit and talk about the scene first, what they were thinking, how it's like to sort of, you know, stress eat, because that's basically what they're doing. They're stress eating. And so, you know, and then I got to sit in the producer's tent with um, the monitor and sort of watch them do the scene different times, um, getting the different angles and doing slight adjustments to the lines. Um, so it was nice. It's really neat to see it all now edited together after seeing exactly how the, that entire scene was formed. And I just loved it because when I was there, even knowing what was going on, they're so good. They pulled me into those characters so deeply in those moments that I was crying. You know, at, at one point, especially when, you know, Lou is talking about just sort of like all the stupid stuff you do for love and questioning like whether or not you do it because you're really just afraid to be alone. And that's like really something that hit me deep and still does and is a real, you know, I think something that everybody can probably relate to, a real universal feeling. So it, it was just well done. Well, last week when we got to speak to Jonathan in advance of episode eight, we actually asked him a couple questions about the scene with uh, Tabitha, with Tabitha and Lou and, and him and Ashley Romans in the car. So now we're, we're going to actually cut back to a little clip from that interview with Jonathan that was specifically about episode nine that we kept out of our interview uh, that you guys bonus. heard last week. Bonus! Uh, bonus! Uh, yeah, so so yeah, so uh, listen to him uh, talk with us last week, and then we'll be right back, and we'll move on with uh, the episode. When I was visiting the set back in December, I was there for filming parts of episodes nine and ten. So this is from episode yeah. nine. There's a scene with Ashley Romans where you you guys are in the SUV and you go from joking about fast food to having like this really mm. honest moment where, you know, Lou wonders if he stays because of his love for Vic and Wayne or if it's because he's like a coward and afraid of being alone. And mm. like when I was watching, I was watching on the monitor, like when I was watching that, that just really, really hit me. The, the delivery, the line. I think it's probably something that everybody can relate to at, at one point or another. And I was in there. You got me crying. I mean, I was by myself oh. in the producer's <laughs> tent. And I'm in there just like, oh, you know, tears are How dare you make her cry? And I'm thinking, oh my God, the last thing I need is for like Jamie O'Brien and and Nina Jack to walk in here right now. Well, of course, as soon as I thought that, here they come on into the tent and I'm trying (laughs) to hide my face, you know, because I'm totally goobered out. You know, I guess maybe that showing them that like they like that and that's also why I I was determined to, to say something to you after wrap that night yeah because um i know i remember that yeah, yeah you i mean but i was i was still so flustered because of the emotion in the scene 
it's so wonderful to see. And, and it's also one of the few times that we get like Lou and Tabitha together. From mm. your perspective, like what was it like putting that together and doing that scene? Like I can tell you what it was like, but tell everybody <laughs> what you think it was like. <laughs> Um, for that particular scene, I, I really enjoyed it because it was, it was exactly what you just described. It was a moment where, uh, Tabitha and Lou actually get to, you know, like sit down and, and have a moment between everything before that moment. It, it's just been really, without giving away anything, like it's, it's been pretty non-stop thriller. So <laughs> been pretty heavy. So yeah. I, I like the uh, the scene in terms of like it starting off with like a lightness. I also more importantly loved the fact that we got to delve. You kind of got to see the Lou behind his superpower, you know, because like in the end yeah. of the day, like he can't be calm and taking care of everybody for forever. You know, he has his own fears. He has his own wants. And like he got to talk through it with somebody like uh, with a friend, you know, it was just really, really nice to explore that side of Lou. He could let his guard down in a sense and be like, you know, why am I really? Why am I here? Like, why am I doing all this for her? Why am I? What what is my purpose in this relationship? You know, for myself, for my for, you know, for for my son I'm taking care of. Like, why? Why? Like, why am I here? And he, he really it's a really hard question he had to ask himself. And I think, to be honest, I think it's a bit of both. I think Lou loves Vic unconditionally and at the same time he is afraid of being alone he wants this family like it's one thing before meeting Vic to not have it and want it and it's another thing to to actually experience this wonderful this wonderful like moment of life like and and for me I could relate because I got to experience that like I was a a new father um I had my first child and even though I couldn't see her I was just talking to her over like video call and stuff like it was tough because like I wanted to to be there to see her more I was I knew I was missing out on moments uh, to do that and um I, I was there for the first two months and then I wasn't there right and my wife was at home all alone and stuff so I really for that particular scene I kind of drew upon like what was actually oh. what I was actually experiencing a lot and I knew I would because I could relate to it you know it's just like I miss my family a lot and I knew why I was there not that part but like I felt that it it could very much so translate into I could use that emotion for Lou in that moment because he he really does love his family he understands that Vic has done some things that other people would have been like peace I'm out but like he loves them together more you know he loves the, the family unit that they've established more and he doesn't want to lose that. And it is a fear of losing that, like that, the, the most, probably the best thing that's ever happened to him in his entire life. Right. Uh, so yeah, he's, 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 he calls himself a, a coward because maybe he's just afraid of being alone, but like who would want to have, who would want to just like have a wonderful family that you love and right. then lose it all. I think Lou is confused. Like Lou bespeaks a little. Well, this is Jonathan saying that Lou just has a wrong understanding of it. But I think that's one of the quirks of Lou because I think I'm referring to myself in like the fourth person at this point. (laughs) So I think I was standing. My nose is bleeding. Yeah. So, but I I think so. I think you've achieved your your purpose. So I think that's yeah. That's that's it. Is there is there a road though? And I mean, you as uh, as someone who understands Lou in a way that maybe others don't, um, mm-hmm. 
Is there a road, on the other hand, on the other side of that equation, where he actually does walk away, though, from Vic and, and from Wayne or, you know, gulp if, if Wayne didn't make it back from Christmas land? Well, uh, uh, just walk away from, from Vic. Could he be pushed so far as, as he kind of threatens throughout the season? Yes. Um, yeah. I think that limit is like I was uh... – like I described before, like he's for the unit. He's for keeping the family together because he loves his family. But if there is a threat to the family, then he's going to act upon it. And if that threat threat is coming from within the family, then yeah, because at the end of the day, like um, he knows his son needs stability, right? He needs to be in a home where there's a routine and, and, and he's the son feels loved and not like neglected and stuff. Cause that's what's best for him because he really cares about uh, uh Wayne and I feel that like that would be that that would be the red line for Lou. Right. Like if Vic like continued along that path and and didn't make any efforts or anything to to change and just do that then yeah that would be that would yeah. be it for them. For well sure. and and I think you really get a sense of that though when when he sits her down at the lake house and he starts talking to her about wanting to adopt Wayne in case anything was happened to her exactly. but then the converse, the conversation shifts without it really shifting mm-hmm. and the it, there's just a lot of silence in that scene I know because I, I played it a bunch because of the podcast I was prepping for there, there's <laughs> like it's like a two minute scene with very little dialogue it's just a lot of weight of the tension yeah and, and as as Vic understands what he's saying here kind of the uh, the unspoken ultimatum that he's putting down here like you really get the sense of Lou is not fucking around, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like he, yeah. This is. Yeah. That's it. That's it for him. Like he's that's that's his red line. He loves her too. But if you're gonna start like putting their son's life in danger, then no, like that can't work. That's Jamaican saying. As I grew up Jamaican, that cannot go on. It can't go on. Cannot. Wow. Yeah. Which means it can't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Put that together. Like I was saying before, a threat to the unit needs to be addressed for Lou. And if it's even within the unit, it can't. It, it can't happen. It, it it's not good for 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 Wayne. Lou knows that Vic knows is not good for him either. Like she know he knows that she knows what she's doing is negatively affecting their son. And if she's unwilling to to change, then it's not fair to just to do that to their son. She knows that too. You know that she agrees with him or at least that she appreciates he's on point here because she doesn't say anything like he he drops this tremendous kind of threat to her yeah and she just sits there and takes it and he walks away you know and that's how you know if she's being honest with herself she she understands that he is saying the right thing here yeah her lack of a response exactly yeah wow what a fucking downer to end on jesus christ (laughs) (laughs) yep all right, let's go get you know, a warm. Let's all get get warm bathtubs with some razor blades, man. It's gonna <laughs> fucking awesome in here. Let's go back. Can we talk? Can we go back to you shitting your pants some more? That was oh, of course, oh, all day. <laughs> Everything, minister. The minister says a, the minister says you have ended the podcast on an unsatisfying low note, <laughs> and you shall change it. I think we just did. I've written the decree. The people do not like the sadness. Give us I've some signed, it, it is of utmost importance, so I've signed my real name, Joseph Wormstrosity the Third. 
the third is part of the name. It's not a number. It's, it's not actually, the exact I'm name. actually the fifth. The third, <laughs> the fifth. There was a little bit of a mix-up during the 1920s. It was uh, very, very, very... Record-keeping was not what you had wanted to be. Exactly. There was a lot of money going around. Credit was established. People were taking out loans left, right, and so nobody was looking at names. <laughs> Yeah, so another big thank you to Jonathan Langdon. He was so great. He talked yeah. with us for so long. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, he had us just uh, tears rolling down our face the entire time. I hope you guys enjoyed the full interview from last week and uh, that little clip just now. Also, stay tuned because in our interview with Josh Meltzer coming up at the end of this episode, we also talked about this scene and the food aspect of it and, and what yeah. went into what went into keeping hot fries in Ashley and Jonathan's hands as they went through the scene uh, in that <laughs> on that cold night. Uh, it was cold and rainy. Yes. Let's go back into Christmas Land proper. What did you think of the first time Vic lays eyes on Wayne, Devil Wayne? And again, some more of this gloating from Charlie as Wayne chooses Charlie in Christmas Land over her. It just made me feel really kind of bad for Vic. Like she wasn't doing a very good job of, I don't think, trying to convince Wayne that he needed to go be with her and I mean it just it was sort of sad to see that ownership you know just sort of thrust in her face and and like you're saying Charlie Charlie gloating even after he was just in that you know horrible house he, he still sort of I guess feels like he won Millie is still there by his side so yeah it was a really hard scene to watch overall um just it really just it made me feel bad it made me mad at, at Wayne <laughs> Even though it's not his fault, just like damn it, kid, just go to your mom. Just go to your mom. There's I don't a know, lot how do you the, feel? There, there, there's a lot of the mad at Wayne. You know, I feel like in the Facebook in the Facebook group, there's there's a lot of Wayne hate going on. Poor and, Wayne. Yeah, I think people have to keep a perspective that like he's not really acting up his own accord in any way here. He didn't even have shoes. <laughs> Oh, well, well, he's got he's got shoes now, baby. Well, he didn't for like five episodes. Leave him alone. <laughs> I, I think I'm specifically talking back to like when he was outside of the car, when he was essentially free, and he stopped the crusher, and he and he kind of it seemed like he voluntarily joined Charlie. None of that is him acting voluntarily. He's still under the sway of the car and all of the poison that's entered his body, wraith poison, as it were, that's entered his body. His so, soul is gone. Yeah, I mean, even by that point, he's he's a shell of himself. If not for Crispy Craig, he's so far gone even before then. And I yeah, I think I think we all have to keep some perspective that there is very little that a kid can do against the power of Charlie Manx's Christmas Land and the wraith. It is a snowball, not to use a snow pun. It is a snowball effect that even even most adults probably would find hard to resist, if at all, let alone a kid, no matter how special or powerful or strong creative that kid is. Especially when you just get there. I mean, why would you ever want to leave? <laughs> I mean, he did make a good point. They just got there. <laughs> you know, another, you know, place, you know, obviously we go into basically a melee run where it's, where it's scissors for the drifter after oh, poor Vic and Maggie. And what did you think of that ice maze of everybody sort of running in there and, and that sort of being where more of this confrontation would basically play out? 
I mean, it, it's like taking a hall of mirrors, which is always one of the most effective things in a horror movie, because you, you never know what's real and what's fake, what's a, a an image or a hologram and what's real. It was that kind of tension, but put into an ice, you know, in, in an eternal ice maze. It, it was it was really high horror for me. It was high like jump scare horror, you know, where it's almost like borders like psychological thriller. And it's always a juxtaposition when you see these kids because you just assume kids are not going to be vicious, horrible, blood sucking murder creatures. And then all of a sudden they're stabbing you or biting you. Yeah. Even your own, even your own fucking kid is shiving you in the side mm-hmm. as you go to give them a nice hug. Uh-huh. And you're like, oh yeah, that's right. These kids are little fucking monsters. Yeah, you, you can never forget they're they're monsters. I love that Vic and Maggie did this together. This seemed like a real journey that the two of them should be on together yes. in this maze. Yes. Yeah, I'm really happy that they got to experience it together because this is one of those times where Vic needs Maggie. She needs him when she's wailing on old man Manx's head. She needs Maggie to pull her back from the edge. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I I was so glad Maggie was there in that moment because I was like, whoa, she's totally going Chris McFucking Queen on Manx's head. Yeah, she was getting that rage out. And it was like, you know, just like Chris wasn't thinking when he was getting his rage out on Bing, he wasn't thinking about Wayne and saving Wayne. And that's exactly, exactly what Vic started to do. And Maggie pulled her back from that. And they're both hurt, right? I mean, Maggie is. Maggie yeah, they're is, both bleeding. Know, yeah, she's pretty hurt. And remember, this is an episode after we saw Chris, you know, McQueen, one of the series regulars, die. I mean, his body's still laying on the ground, and, you know, Lou is set to, you know, kept watch over him. You know, the penultimate episode of the season, all bets are off. You know, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure Vic is making it out of the episode. That would be kind of weird. You think Charlie is probably going to make it out of this episode because, again, core. But Maggie? I don't know that there's any. Maggie's, Maggie's already outlived where she lives in the book. A little bit. You know, so all bets are off. So this whole scene was real high tension. This is a show that's not afraid to go there. We've said it many times. So, I, I mean, I, it's the kind of scene where, like, I'm, my nails are in my palm, turning them white, drawing some blood from, like, squeezing so hard. Because I didn't know where it was going to go when the wall closes up and then Charlie... You know, it's talking about right. how kids can always make it out of the eternal maze, but adults never seem to do. And remember, we just saw a freshly dead adult body in the corner just seconds ago. It was really terrifying. When when he backhands Maggie with the the, the bone hammer, I didn't know what was going to happen. How relieved were you when the bombs started going off around the park? Well, yeah, gotta love that timing because, you know, he was probably about to kill Maggie at that moment just to make Vic suffer some more do that first and then you know keep hurting Vic but basically this whole entire sequence you know was something that that I was really hoping and excited to see I only had hints of but it's it's also another thing for fans of Wraith and C.P. Wilson's illustration there's this really amazing overhead view of this a section of the maze and there's you know tons of kids running around with weapons and there's horrible things happening to drifters and there's bodies and so it's all like you're saying it's it was high horror it was great seeing you know this artwork come to life and scared the shit out of me like i've got chills just talking about it again as they're like hiding around these corners and these kids are singing these twisted christmas songs which i gotta get the transcripts for because i really want to hear the lyrics to some of these oh it was great and then when the bomb started going off okay we've got a chance finally we've got a chance okay good and then it was yeah then it was just all pandemonium for one thing i have to say christmas in your house anna must be a fucking hoot you are (laughs) you you are uh 
I mean, no, no, no Alvin and the Chipmunks. I want a hula hoop bullshit at your place. But no, uh, no. Two, there's always a scene in all of the Purge movies where it stops being fun Purge times and it just turns into chaos, murder, and looting. <laughs> and and I feel like once the bombs start going up in Christmas Land, that's kind of where we get to, right? You well, know, I just you had have... a giddy giddy laugh over that. So if that's any inclination. I mean, when you have you have old man Charlie wandering through, oh, like, yeah. like without his teeth, asking where Millie is, like it's Father Christmas, where's Millie? And all the kids are like, whatever, we're burning shit, we're looting, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pandemonium just it all fall just like all societies. Christmas Land falls apart immediately, very fast. It was just no holds barred. <laughs> Everybody for themselves. Yeah, I remember it, but we knew that was going to happen, though, right? Because Cassie warns us, Crackleface Cassie warns us and Millie that the uns- the instability of Charlie's mind is causing problems in Christmas Land's instability. Yeah. They're tied together. The harder he falls, the f- harder Christmas Land falls, and it's literally all falling apart here. Where was your dramatic tension and feeling with Millie standing at the veil and then crossing over into the ornament field, the tree ornament field? Millie is kind of like my favorite character at this point. I, I like, I want to like cry. I'm so proud of her. We finally get to see her realize kind of what a shit her father is. I mean, like we were talking about, it, it happens. The realization hits her when, when she finally sees her parents together and the truth that, you know, her mom's been trying to tell her. I thought it was kind of fun, you know, as soon as she crosses out, she does start to disappear. I mean, maybe it was a little bit too convenient that we see her cat ornament, that cat pin there, right there, just in reach, just in time for her to not completely turn into static and then she comes back as soon as she holds it so whoa forget yeah. deuce ex machina it's right. more like deuce ex deuce ex cat or menta oh for sure um but uh, but still awesome to see it kind of starts if you're not familiar with the book it kind of starts to fill in the blanks on you know the soul the souls will fall you know prophecy from the tiles that holding her cat ornament restores her to her corporeal self or or keeps her from disappearing she doesn't revert to non-ghoul millie but nor does she disappear yeah there's something here the show is hinting at us that there is something important here between you know being in physical contact with your ornament self and uh you know not disappearing when you enter the real world they're they're like tethers i mean at this point i mean it's keeping her it's the final horcrux piece basically yeah it's 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 tethers it's that link between you know the world of thought and it's allowing her to, to now be back in the world of real just to back up one second just because it was a great millie and charlie moment in the costume shop before he goes to get vic and maggie in the maze you know they have that they have they have their final conversation millie and charlie and when she says you know if you want to go kill vic mcqueen you know do it yourself Mm. which is a great line but then she Mm. says merry christmas father and then she starts like Fuck yeah, girl. Slams that door. Boom. She's I mean, out. Millie Manx could be a real housewife of like, you know, the Bravo series. She's got <laughs> some real swagger to her and I kind of love it. So, uh, Did we just come up with another show idea? Yeah. Yeah. Real Housewives of Christmas Land. The spinoffs just keep spinning. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We're going to AMC call us. We have your entire fall programming set up. <laughs> 
We're winding down to the end of this episode here. We have Vic. We have Wayne. Maggie has kind of disappeared at this point. We yeah. don't know where she is. <laughs> She's not doing great, but but let's focus on Vic and Wayne here for a second. Because Wayne Wayne is still being a little bit of like, you know, Christmas just started. And she she you know she disarms him, luckily, because she doesn't want to take another ship to the belly. Yeah. But then she kind of has to physically manhandle him. It's not like he comes quietly, no matter how strong their bond is. And then the lights completely go off in Christmas Land. What was your feeling when the power went out in Christmas Land? Because I, I have a feeling you were probably a little sad. <laughs> a little bit, maybe. But and and I was kind of like hoping maybe they would f- kind of flicker. I thought it was a flicker, just temporary. But you know, I guess it, it just it it felt too final. I don't like that. I hope the lights come back. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, ah. he's got a bone. I mean, Charlie's got a bone hammer sticking out of his skull when we leave. So, uh, or, or basically, basically a, he's got a he's got a splitting headache. You know, get that boy some Advil. So if the lights going off seems kind of like the final uh, death knell of Christmas Land, but but we don't know because you know we have we have that line. Uh, you know, is Christmas over from Wayne? And I think that is. It really is a genius way to end the episode. It is. It's, the yeah, perfect. It was another, you know, great way to, to sort of end it on, on, a, on a note that you normally wouldn't expect. Fantastic. What a ride. This was a longer episode without commercials. This came in at about 46 minutes, which is one of the longer episodes they've done this season. But even at 46 minutes, I felt like they got a lot done in this episode. Remember, this episode opens just right after Chris is killed. I mean, you, the episode opens with... Vic telling Lou to stay with my father. I have to go get Wayne from Christmas land. Think how far we came in just that hour. It was all good stuff. There was no fat. There was it nothing. Was extraneous. It, it was tight. tight. It, yeah. was, it, it was so, so good. It was all the vitamins you need and none of the fat. And mm. this show has done such a good job <sighs> all season long yeah. of giving, of, of making their episodes so efficient and in, and in that way, so enjoyable. And this was a great example of this. I don't know if this was my favorite episode of this season, but it's definitely top three, if not my favorite. I really, really enjoyed this. It gave me everything I had been waiting for. It's entirely impressive. And yeah, like you just said, it, it gave me everything I was hoping to see. Christmas Land, the, the scale of it, the danger of it, the wild, twisted fun of it they got it all right i think this was just an amazing achievement in, in their storytelling uh in storytelling in general and 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 how they've brought this really insane very strange universe to to life for us i'm blown away I'm, i've got i've had like chills like probably 10 times talking about it this this episode i think that takes us to the end of our discussion of welcome to christmas land and chris fucking mcqueen but we are not done yet, though, because we have a very Woo. interesting, very good, very enlightening, and very long interview with uh, property master Josh Meltzer. Josh was really kind with us. He stayed on the line with us for so long. I threatened to hold him hostage until he showed <laughs> me all of the things he's ever worked on. I, I, thre- I threatened to keep him hostage until I finished talking about Night Court. He was such a good sport. I, he was great and stayed with us for so long and talked to us for a really long yeah. time. I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Here's our interview with Josh Belzer now, and then we're going to come back and wrap up the show. Our guest tonight on Strong Creators Welcome is Nosferatu's property master, Joshua Meltzer. Josh has been keeping actors' hands full for almost 40 years, working on such iconic shows as Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, Night Court, Will and Grace, Dexter, 
and now Nosferatu. Josh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you doing? Oh, thank you for having me. This is a this is a pleasure. Yay, it's a huge honor for us as well, very much. Thank you so much. Your career basically spans over 40 years of working in props. I've been actively admiring your work for so long, um, especially for the show Dexter. So please, how did you get started in this very specific part of show business? Unless you're, you're a family member is a prop master, you don't really wake up one day and say, I want to be a prop master. For me, I was a child actor. And uh, my father was one of the original old writers in early Hollywood back in the 30s and 40s and through the golden age and everything. Wow. And through a, a series of events, he did a favor for somebody back in the late 1950s and got somebody a job in the industry, pushing a wardrobe rack around Columbia Studios. And that gentleman worked his way up the ladder and became the vice president in charge of production at Universal wow. around the time I was 18. And my dad, knowing the industry and how difficult an actor's life is, I always joke that I think he didn't want me to be sleeping on his couch when I was 40. <laughs> so um, he, he called in a favor that was long overdue and said, I don't really care how you do it or what you do, but just get Josh a fallback job. Within a couple of weeks, I was at Universal and I was on the back lot and I was digging ditches and running a jackhammer and I was in the labor department and I hated it because one, I was going to be an actor and two, it was just incredibly uncreative. There's nothing creative about sweeping a stage or digging a ditch. So I kept <laughs> quitting. Are you still pursuing acting all through this, all, all through this, this. Uh, scut work apprenticeship? Yes, yes. I, I, at this point, I'm still headstrong going to, you know, trying to get to auditions and get to my dance class and my voice class. And, oh, wow. And, you know, I was waking up at 5 a.m. to make a 6 a.m. call and work till 2.30 or 3 and come home, take a shower, and then go out to class all night long and then wake up and do it all again. And I think I quit like two or three times. And the last time I quit, I remember... It was one of the very few times my father really got mad at me. And he said, your future is in your hands now. And as I say that, I can still feel the hairs go up on my back. As That's a real I, dad line. That I is got some, chills. That is, I, I, I have a I have a 12-year-old, and that is some real dad line stuff. Oh, That's a yeah. real dad line. Wow. Oh, my God. And, yeah. And uh, I, I, I thought, oh. Oh, oh, damn, you know, what have I done? I mean, now I really have to be an actor. And my dad, I think, probably said that and then went in the other room and begged for one more chance. And luckily, I got a call, I think it was that night, um, to go to the prop department Whoa. and um, instead of the labor department. And so I... I accepted the call. I went, and when you when you start as a in, in the prop department, um, you start as a set dresser, which is kind of a glorified moving man. I mean, you're picking up the furniture and all the set dressing. You're putting it where the decorator wants. It's a right. lot more creative now than it was back when I started, but it was better. But it still wasn't all that creative. Very physical, like you know, very very physical. Very, very physical. Uh, I I pick things up and put them down, kind of exactly. You know? Yeah. But one day I got left on a set 
because we had a huge turnover, changeover uh, on the on the set from the set looking one way to the set looking another way. So the set dressing department left a set dresser to help the prop department with the changeover, and they left me. And so the prop master came over and introduced himself and said, so, you know, where are you going to be when we need to do the changeover? I said, where do you want me? I'm, if you need help, let me know. I'm happy to help. And he said, you want to help? I said, sure. So he took me over to a table and he had four, uh, four uh, packs of cigarettes. And he cut one cigarette to one length, you know, about half an inch down or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want you to take the rest of the cigarettes and match the length of that cigarette. <laughs> and I said, okay, why? <laughs> and when I said why, he smiled because it showed him I wanted to learn. And the rest of the day was just the beginning of the rest of my life. I mean, um, obviously we were doing a scene where somebody was going to smoke and they wanted to start the scene without a full length cigarette. Of course. Right. Yeah. So um, I cut all the cigarettes so that take after take after take, we started with a fresh cigarette, but it was already shorter. Nice. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up learning that trick and how to mix caramel colored drinks. So it looks like uh, scotch and bourbon and everything else, but it's not. <laughs> and all kinds of other little prop tricks. And it was, I went home and I was flying high and I just it was fell in love, with, you, fell you in were, love were... with props that day. Oh, I got wow. chills again. <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, you know, when, when you do what you love, right? It doesn't feel like work. And uh, exactly. that's, that's a very uh, uh, Cupid's arrow story for, for falling in love. Yeah. Uh, when you look at your career, I, I, mean, I mean, we're going back to Trapper John, but you are <laughs> you you are kind of prop master on some of the well, at least for me anyway, some of the most formative comedies of like the eighties. You have you know, here, the same boss, you here. Have yeah. growing yeah, pains. I, I, uh, Night Court I, remains maybe my favorite sitcom uh, of all time. But uh, then you also have Dexter. Like how how do you go from <laughs> Dexter? Then you have Two Broke Girls. Uh, you know, you have Will and Grace reboot, and now yeah, how, and how, you find how, your, how, how long is this show, Mike? As long, <laughs> as long as you want it to be, we are we are here you know, for you, Josh. It's it it's really how I how I got started in props is one thing. How I got my prop master's card is a whole another story that I won't go into. Well, but, I think I read somewhere that you were maybe the youngest prop master in uh, the union's history. Is that is that possibly uh, true? Far, that's what I was told. Uh-huh. I don't uh-huh. know if it's true, but there was a whole <laughs> criteria. You had to work five thousand hours and take a test. I take a written test, take an oral test and everything else. And, you know, most people didn't start when they were 18 years old. Sure. So um, by the time most people became prop masters, they were in their, you know, mid to late 20s um, at, at the earliest. So that's what I was told. And I'll just go with it. But how I got such a wide variety of shows is being an actor. I had a huge background in live theater. Um, I did a little bit of film work, but I did a lot of theater and it's still my first love. But because I did theater, I understood a rehearsal process, which is different for theater than it is in a single camera uh, film show. Right. And in 1980, 
2003, when I got my Prop Masters card, Norman Lear had just taken his company, Embassy Television, from one lot to the universal lot. And because it went from a lot that was a different union's jurisdiction, when he got to Universal, he had to use film people because okay. it was a film lot. Oh, okay, sure. And most of the film prop masters did not understand this process. So oh. they didn't know how to look at a blueprint and tape out a set in a rehearsal hall for oh, rehearsals wow. and even what a rehearsal prop was. Right. Because we, as a film, as a film prop man, you're used to getting the real thing. That's all right. you need is the real thing. You don't need to stand in. So right. because I had this background and somehow, thank God, somebody found out about it. There was, um, uh, and I don't know if it was Norman or how it happened. Um, and Norman was an old friend of my father's, but I don't think that played anything in this. I got a phone call one day when I was an assistant on a show from a producer out of the blue saying, do you know how to do uh, uh, a theater format for a, a multi-camera uh, videotape show? And I said, yeah. They said, I'd like to meet you. And that literally was the beginning of the Prop Master's career. You know, that show was a, a short-lived show called Double Trouble with uh, the Seagal twins. But that was the, that was the beginning of my, my Prop Master career. Wow. Wow. Now, is there is there a big difference working on a multi-camera show versus a a, a single camera show in 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 the in the kinds of props you use? Because because the video versus the tape looks different. The 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 image quality looks different. So do you approach how you uh, prop a show differently depending on whether it's a multi-camera or a single camera show? Undoubtedly. Yeah, because. I mean, obviously, going back to the beginning when I was doing Double Trouble, yeah, there were shows with videotape. And yeah, there were a lot of differences, not just the style of props, but the color of props and things like that, because they did photograph differently. Now everything's right. digital and it doesn't right. matter. But yeah, I mean, the, the last multi-camera show I did was Will and Grace, the, the reboot of Will and Grace. And it's coffee cups and it's, um, <laughs> it's you know... Uh, uh, Will is cooking a lot. There's always a, a gag, a gag prop for one of uh, Jack's entrances. You know, it's a little different than the Demon Children of Christmas Land. It's, it's different than the Demon Children. <laughs> it's different. I mean, the props are are generally not all the time, but generally, uh, the props on a multi-camera show, a sitcom, are much more um, simplistic, mundane. Okay. Uh, as opposed to some of the more complicated things we do in multi-camera, because in multi-camera, we can get all kinds of different angles, whereas in a uh, in, in, in single camera, we get all kinds of angles, whereas in multi-camera, we're basically shooting it with a proscenium like a stage show. Right, right. Uh, so... But... Just because I, anyway, I don't know if anyone else is, but I'm I'm obsessed with the inside baseball of it all. How do you go from Will and Grace, your your last uh, multi camera show, to to Nosferatu only a year and a half later? What's the process for you getting hooked up with you know Joe and Jamie and and AMC and 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 getting staffed for the show for as the prop master? 
you know, I, uh, I have a, uh, I have a saying, uh, that Anna knows actually, you know, uh, and then the phone rang and, uh, and that's really what happened. Uh, I, I think I'd shot the, I shot the first two episodes of, uh, season three of, um, Will and Grace. And I was sitting at my desk with my crew and my phone rang and, you know, it had a number I didn't know. And it said Rhode Island. And, <laughs> and I, I turned to my crew and I said, Oh, great. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to get offered a show in Rhode Island <laughs> as, a, as a complete utter joke. I thought it was some sort of, you know, gag call or you know telemarketer telemarketer you know. Something. Right. your your car warranty is about to be up you know <laughs> and i answered the phone and this guy said um yeah i'm looking for josh Meltzer," and i said uh that's me and he goes are you the guy that did dexter yes <laughs> yes yes and i said <laughs> and of course in that moment i knew exactly what was going to follow and i said yes and he said, well, you know, I'm the production designer on this really kind of strange, twisted show we're doing out here in Rhode Island. And I'm just wondering <laughs> if you might be interested in this. And so he told me about it. And I hung up the phone and I turned to my crew and I said, son of a bitch, I was just offered a show in Rhode Island. Yes. <laughs> and they both, said, they both said, take it. Yeah. And yeah. I immediately hopped on online with them and we started researching Nosferatu. And of course you see all the pictures of Charlie Manx and he's 116 years old and everything else. And I'm going, Oh yeah, this is my kind of show. Oh, oh I love for that. Sure. I love that. So, so yeah. <laughs> and and that, that's how I got hooked up with it. I didn't know, I didn't know anybody on the show. The production designer actually called another prop master who he knew who wasn't able to do the show and said, you know who to call, call Josh. This is totally his kind of show. Yes. And that's how it all happened. Perfect. Instead of just Jack, it's just Josh. It's that just was, Josh. You know, just Josh. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, okay. For those who don't know, you know, who maybe haven't followed these sort of behind the scenes careers of, of crew members. Okay. What can you explain? what exactly you do as a property master um, compared to say like some of the other departments um, like production design or set. The easiest way when, when, I'm, when somebody says, you know, what does a prop master do? First off, I say, well, first you need to understand what a prop is and right. there you go. a prop by definition is whatever the actors handle. Um, so I know that creates some gray areas because sometimes they handle a chair or they handle, but it's unless they're going to pick the chair up and break it over somebody's head, you know, it's a piece of set dressing because it's part of the look of the set. If they do pick it up, then it does become kind of a crossover between the effects department and the prop department. But generally a prop is anything the actors are handling. So, in terms of what I do, uh, I keep actors' hands full. You know, um, <laughs> uh, I work, the prop department is, 
is one of the few departments that really interacts with virtually every other department at some point in a production. You know, uh, sound, camera, costumes, uh, grips, electric, paint, uh, construction, uh, locations. I mean, I have to be on speaking terms with every department wow. uh, to really do my job well. Uh, you know, uh, obviously I work closest with the other members of the art department, you know, the set dressing crew, the set decorator, the production designer, you know, that's the, 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 the real nucleus for, for the, the look of the show. And, and, but within there though, I mean, those are all delineated roles. Like for, for people who don't stop and read the credits after movies or after TV shows, you know, production designer, set designer, set decorator, property master, those are all clearly delineated roles though it's yes. not it's not it, people may use them interchangeably but to to you and other people in the business people you work with it it has a very specific meaning though yes yes uh, very specific you know obviously the production designer is is responsible for the overall look of the show you know the production designer will usually in conjunction with the decorator and the costume designer create a color palette for each set for the overall arc of the show, things like that. The set decorator is just that. I mean, the set decorator is in charge of getting all the furniture pieces and the floor coverings and, um, you know, uh, all the artwork on the walls. So right. What we actually produce a uh, uh, another podcast here called Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with Beth Kushnick. Um, Beth is a set decorator. Oh, She's worked yeah. on yeah, uh, Evil most recently, but a bunch of, you know, uh, Good Fight, Good Wife. Anyway, and so one thing that comes up on that show all the time is she's always talking about how her, the team is a very important thing to her, but also the communication among all the different uh, departments. How, how, as a property master, do you fit in from the beginning of the script versus through the filming because again i know from the set decorator side you know often she's kind of like the last piece before they start filming but i imagine for your job you have to be involved much much earlier uh so so can you take us through where you are when the script comes out and and when your when your job starts rolling my job starts with getting the script you know even if it's just the outline for a script and trying to understand you know what what it is we're trying to what what's the story because at the end of the day i don't care what job you have in the filmmaking process we're all storytellers we're just visual storytellers and we're trying to help the showrunner the director really crystallize their vision for what you know is on the page trying to bring that to life so um I, I start with, uh, with uh, reading whatever it is I'm given and then communication, you know, immediately going to the showrunner, the production designer, um, the set decorator, you know, trying to find out what the big overall pieces or colors or if there's something specific in the script that I have a question about, you know, you know, what are we going to do for... Um, you know, the the morgue that we find Charlie Manx in, is that going to be, you know, a real morgue? Are we building the morgue? You know, is it a practical morgue? Um, how many bodies are we going to see? I mean, 
obviously I'm referencing everything from episode one this season. Mm, sure, sure. But that's, you know, that's kind of where a lot of my questions um, started when I found out about Nosferatu. I started right at the beginning with the morgue because that's the first thing that the audience is going to see. So you're basically just trying to get as much information uh, uh, that, that helps you you get a visual sense of what they're looking for, what their vision is, is going to ultimately be. And then you're, you're, just, you're literally just kind of starting from scratch at that point. Do you bring uh, like a toolbox with you of tricks, you know, I mean, sort of visit a combination every, of the every, two. Yeah. It, yes. I'm starting from scratch in terms of the specifics for a given show or, or episode. But every prop master has a 40, what we call a 40 foot trailer um, that has a ton of different, if you were to walk into any prop master's trailer, you would be amazed because there's all kinds of, you know, those plastic bins with flip top lids on them. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Every prop man has probably uh, 75 to 150 of those that are full with very organized, you know, there may be one with just picnic blankets and one with, <laughs> with party supplies and one, you know, with, uh, you know, eyeballs, you, you know, thermoses. <laughs> uh, and then there's usually, you know, all kinds of drawers that we have for all kinds of what we call smalls, wristwatches and rings and uh, eyeglasses and uh, all kinds of pens and paper. And because we do everything, right. we do a little bit of everything. If something breaks on the set, doesn't matter, doesn't matter what it is or what department it is, they usually come to the prop department to get it fixed. You know, sure, we are, you, we are yeah. a jack of all trades. It sounds like it. And I mean, you brought up the whole thing about smalls, like watches and rings and things like, and that's sort of another question that I had was, was sort of where does that, and, you know, talking about how, uh, if the actor touches it, if, if they have to hold it, then it's a prop. So it's, it's sort of like this blurry line between, I guess, costume and prop. So, I mean, if they're wearing is, is it costume versus if they're using it, is it a prop? Like, like Millie Soar exactly. in Nosferatu, you know, it's sort of both in a way, I guess. Millie Soar. Now I didn't do season one. I, I came in uh, season two, uh, another really, really good prop master. I'll give a shout out. Scott Reeder. Hi Scott. Did, uh, season one. <laughs> um, I think he's been on the show, right? Um, no, not uh, yet. No, not in this one. Not, not yet, anyway, no. <laughs> okay. Um, I, when I got there, Millie Sword was was already established. But I know that in season one, the look of the sword, the length of the sword, um, how it uh, affixed to her costume and all of that, all of that was all coordination and conversations between the costume designer and the prop master. So, yeah, it. And when it comes to rings and watches, Anna, it is a very gray area. And the way it usually works is if wedding rings, generally wedding rings, engagement rings are props. If it's cocktail rings or any kind of ring that is more of a statement ring, usually the costume designer will take it Ooh. because it's part of the look of the character. Uh-huh. 
Um, same thing with wristwatches. If it's just an actor who's wearing a wristwatch, I'll usually work it out with the actor. Um, but if it's a very specific watch and it's really part of the, the character and stuff like that, the costume designer will usually, it'll probably be a conversation between the actor and the, the prop master and the costume designer. Right. You can't have like a really rich character wearing like a Casio calculator watch or something, you know. You yes. can. <laughs> not a good idea. Just watch. <laughs> he, he becomes, that character becomes eccentric at that point, you know. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, Anna, you have your question. About the oh, yeah. Um, That's a great one. You the other one I want to know is about food. Okay, so when uh -huh. I was on the set, we were, they were filming episode nine. Um, and I was kind of a fly on the wall as Jonathan Langdon and Ashley Romans were prepping to do their scene when they're in the SUV as Lou and Tabitha basically talking about what crazy shit they do for love while stress eating fast food. So I heard somebody taking their orders. So how does that work? It's a prop, it's food. Is that well, sort um, of a special situation? Food, food is a prop. Okay. Uh, un oh, unless yeah. unless the food is going to just you know um how do we explain that uh unless the food is food is generally a prop if you walk into a bakery set and the cases are full of of baked goods that's usually set dressing sure because it's the look of the cases yeah but if they're going to go into one of the cases and take out a specific cake that cake would be a prop. That's the best way oh, to neat. explain okay. that. Well, that but, makes sense. Um, but food is 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 generally uh, a prop uh, when the actors are involved, the the, the principal actors, and uh, the person taking uh, the orders was probably my uh, my assistant Heidi, who is you know I'm the prop master on the show, so I'm responsible for actually the look of everything and obtaining everything. But because I'm always working an episode ahead, prepping an episode ahead, doing meetings and stuff like that, I don't really work the set much. So Heidi's my assistant, but I, I always call her the set prop master and she runs the set. So That's she was nice. taking, she was taking the orders. Okay. And as I remember, that was a very cold and inclement night. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Very muddy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I believe the scene was uh, hamburgers and french fries. Oh, it was. It made me hungry just watching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, of course, you know, I believe it was something like, I don't know, 30-something degrees out that night. And, you know, trying to keep food so that it's palatable uh, for actors and safe also. Um you know, there's uh, microwaves have have been used for a long time, but you can overheat things and they start to become leather and then the actors are chewing on it. It doesn't oh. look good. <laughs> right. uh, there's a new thing, the air fryers, which are a godsend for props. And that's really how we did that scene. Whenever we were getting close to finishing a take, we would throw some more fries in the air fryer and heat them up real quick. Oh and it's like, so a, like they, a midwinter. It's like a midwinter cookout. I love Ooh, it. Yes. So, uh, you know, we we would uh, always have hot food because, I mean, being an actor, 
Uh, I approach props differently than some of my colleagues because I try to always make props actor easy. So if an actor doesn't have to worry about the prop, all they have to worry about is their performance. You know, yeah. if they have if they have trust in the prop master and the prop team that the prop's always going to be there, it's always going to work. We have we've made the actor's job so much easier. So I really as much as possible love to give actors food that's that's tasty and edible because there's nothing worse than sitting and watching a scene and it's a dinner scene and you're watching people push food around on their plate oh, yeah. and and tear little pieces of a roll off and eat a piece of bread. I cuz I know exactly what's going on. Oh wow. <laughs> cuz the, the the food's been sitting on the plate for right. 3 hours. It's become a hockey puck, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's definitely a really interesting perspective that you just really don't hear very much. Let, let's uh, let's uh, let's switch gears to something a little less paddle, palatable than burgers and fries. <laughs> oh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Bing Partridge took a face full of bird shit, uh, and it, it was <laughs> it was fantastic. And uh, you know, a lot of you know, I, I, I'm hoping anyway. You know, Dari didn't have to take real bird excrement in the face. Uh, pull back the curtain a little bit for us. How do you make those kinds of things look so real? I mean, you, you already mentioned the caramel in the in the drinks to make it look like you know brown liquor. But how, how do you do something so realistic when it gets that good splat sound? You know, with the you know. Well, the the splat sound. I, I well, sure, that's the, that's gonna be the foley artist, but okay, but yeah, but it looked good but, though. It, it looked but the, uh... the look good. I mean, yeah. What I uh, what I did was uh, it really was just vanilla Greek Greek yogurt uh, with I I believe we put a drop, just a drop, of dark like a black food coloring, like a navy blue or black food coloring in it, and we <laughs> and we put it in a, a small syringe without the needle. So we could just squirt it out. And um, uh, I was not there when we did it, but I would imagine having done things like that many times in my career that right above uh, Dari off camera was Heidi on a ladder with a syringe. That's got to be a fun day to be at work, at least for high yeah. Maybe less so for Dari, but I mean, but that's got to be a fun, like cathartic way for her to spend her day. I'm like, you know, you know, there's worse ways to make a buck. It's true. It's true. Uh, God, when you when you talk about the dark streak in the in the shit, it makes me think of New York pigeons, and that just, yes, that's like PTD, PTSD to my youth. <laughs> so, uh, so, so many leather jackets ruined in the early '90s. Oh man. <laughs> Oh, um, when you're when you're starting out, do you have like a set routine of how you approach, you know, propping a show or does it change depending on sort of the, like the genre or subject matter? Um, you know, can you take us through a little bit maybe of, of uh, maybe how creating props for Nosferatu compares or contrasts to working on other shows that you've done? Yeah, well, in terms of routine, I mean, I don't, I don't generally want to speak for every prop master, but I will tell you right now that every prop master definitely has a routine uh, of their own, 
because you've never met a more OCD bunch of people in your in the world than prop masters. Um, it's all the buckets. <laughs> you know, uh, in terms of comparing and contrasting, most shows, um, you know, even single camera shows, like if I, if I was doing a um, The Good Doctor, you know, there's not a lot of manufacturing work or design work for a prop team on a show like that, because it's all medical. It all exists in the real world, you know? So doing, so, so most of the time a prop master will just go to a prop house or a retail store and get things off the shelf. And if we need to modify it a little bit, we'll modify it. But doing a show like Nosferatu is great because I get to be creative and design. And then you add the whole supernatural element to everything and, you know, it becomes a party for me. And it's really what I love about props is creating creating new worlds. And when you're doing a show like Nosferatu, that's truly what we're doing. We're creating our own world. Oh, yeah. So that's what's really fun about this show. That, this is actually going to disappoint because it was actually one of my questions later on was going to be when you have to manufacture something that doesn't exist or is that at least not a common item that you can – go find easily where do you draw your inspiration the you know to to creatively what what do you look for to to go and create those kinds of things because that i mean you're basically an inventor at that point you're not just executing a blueprint you're making the thing right. uh, yeah so what's where where do you draw your inspiration from for those kinds of things or at least on a show like Nosferatu? well i mean on a show like Nosferatu, i mean it really is kind of a case-by-case basis, you know, depending on what the the item is. That's a tough one. Um, you've stumped me. Damn it. You stumped me. Um, I warned you. I wasn't going to give you everything. I had, I had to get something for you, you know, that you can uh, be thinking about on air. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the inspiration is really a case by case basis. Um, you know, I mean, when when you open the script, and you see that Millie is carrying a zombie, a severed zombie reindeer head. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's a good day for a prop guy. I mean, yes. you know, you know, you're going to have some fun with that, you know, and the inspiration. I mean, I started looking at getting all kinds of photo references for for reindeers and reindeer heads and then for, uh, for, for zombies and, you know, bringing in all kinds of pictures of, uh, uh, walking dead and stuff like that and trying to put the two together and sure. conversations. And then, you know, and then we turn it over to a, uh, a visual artist who's going to actually do a lot of the CGI work, um, on the back end, um, because the severed head, the severed reindeer head that she carried was an actual physical head. Um, wow. But we needed to make digital ones that were full reindeers also. Right, right. So we worked backwards to see what they could create in CGI. And then I recreated it in the physical world. Now, when you, when you watch other shows, 
uh, or you watch other movies, do you, are you able to withdraw yourself from the critical eye of the thing and thinking about how you would do it? Like if you saw that reindeer head in another show, would you be sitting there trying to break down how they did it? Or, or, or can you separate your work from the enjoyment of the thing and, and just kind of go with it? Because I, I know that's, some people just can't detach themselves from their, yeah, from that's, their work. That, that's a great question. It's hard sometimes. Um, and the answer is most of the time, yes. And it doesn't really even go to the props. It, it goes to the quality of the piece. I mean, if I get caught up in the story and sure. the performances and stuff like that, then I'm on the same ride as anybody else would. Right. But, you know, if, if, if the story is a little shaky or performance is a little shaky, then, you know, yeah, I might get bumped by a prop or something like that. You know, yes, if there's something like a severed zombie reindeer head, I probably even in a good movie would go, hmm, wonder how they did that. Um, <laughs> because there is there's so much CGI and I think it's great. I think it just it adds to the storytelling and all of that. But because my career does go back to Trapper John and beyond, um, I come from the world where there was no CGI. There were no computers. We were doing matte drawings um, to do backgrounds. Um, I mean, I really was at the, the end of that era. Um, and I love to try as much as possible to create things physically, um, not only because I just like doing it, it gives me something really cool and, and creative to do, but I also think that it helps the actors because it gives them something to look at. I, I think, you know, personally, I love to see an actual item. I love to see practical work, the, 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 the objects being physically there. It gives it weight. It gives it gravity. It, it It's real. So you're not taken out of it by maybe a little bit of a sketchy CGI effect or anything like right. that. I mean, you know, I, you know, growing up watching all of those same, you know, practical effects all my life so you know there's definitely a huge appreciation for the the design and creation of really interesting objects and also you know like you were talking about the 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 deer heads and having to research anatomy and things and that that's that's also really kind of fascinating that you know you guys really do have to kind of get to that level uh and and it does it just you know from your excitement it does sound like it's a blast <laughs> It is. I mean, it, if you're doing, I mean, if you're doing a show like Nosferatu, you know, or a Dexter or something like that, I mean, if you can't have fun doing shows like that, then you're in the wrong career. Because, I mean, it's, it's 12, 14, 18 hours a day. You never really stop. It's, 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 all day, you know, there's always something to think about. There's always 14 things to think about, but it is so much fun. It is so much fun. When you're working on Nosferatu, the work that you've done, um, sort of, can you tell us maybe, uh, you know, your favorite item that you've created for the show so far? Um, you know, maybe, or was it the most time consuming, you know, the hardest thing that you had to work on for Christmas land? Um, tell us maybe what your favorite, favorite prop was for that, for the show that you've worked on. 
Well, for, for Nosferatu, there's, there's two, actually there's three, but well, one, one wasn't created. Um, here's a little piece of Nosferatu trivia. Um, so in episode two, I believe, Vic um, goes into the morgue and stabs Charlie Manx in the heart with a scalpel. It's fantastic. I love that scene so much. Yeah. Well, that scalpel is my little homage to Dexter because that was Dexter's ah. scalpel. It was the same scalpel I used that Michael or didn't make that Dexter would use uh. to slice the face <laughs> oh, to no. get the blood drop for his blood slides. Chills. Just got so chills again. That's my little homage to Dexter. I love but, that. Uh, in terms of the, yeah, I, I love doing things like that. In terms of um, uh, the props I created, I mean, the the reindeer head is was was fun, but the the one that I really was most proud of was uh, was young Charlie Manx's sled. Oh my god! I was going to ask you about that sled literally in like one minute. I was about to ask you about that sled because Tell- I mean, most people think it's a sled, and that's all it is. But that sled was probably about three weeks of work because it had to be a specific uh, era of sled. It had to have a certain look to it. We had to find a real one, uh, which we found a sled that was about the right size. It was kind of the right era. We kind of then sanded down the wood boards and repainted the whole thing and made it look much more like it was in the correct era but then the sled has a special duty it has to be picked up and broken over somebody's back and then one of the runners has to fall off so that we can you know bludgeon with (laughs) so we can uh you know stab the guy who abused young charlie and then you know if you can't stab your mom with a sled runner i mean (laughs) Right. I mean, I don't know what's what's going on, but so Best show ever, you know. So I had to to create the real sled, which was its own thing, and then create this whole breakaway sled. And then once we figured out what the breakaway was, of course, we made I think we made three or four of them. <laughs> um, and breakaways, especially when, especially when kids are handling them, are always tricky. Because that's a pretty big sled. When, when young yeah. Charlie is swinging that thing into uh, Mr. Tim's back, it, it's it's pretty lengthy compared to the actor. You know, it, it yeah, looks like and yeah. there's a whole lot. I mean, if I knew that I had to know as much as I know now, I would have studied a lot harder in school. <laughs> there's been a lot of on the job, a, a lot of R&D. I mean, there's a whole physics and inertia and you know, he takes the sled back and then as he comes forward, you know, if he's whipping that sled too quickly, that sled's going to break before he even hits the back. Right, right. Because it's, it's really just eighth inch balsa wood and a lot of plastic uh, and hot glue. <laughs> 
That now the Nose went Nose has jumped back in time a couple of times now this season and and it's gone to er, uh, eras you know there was the Great Depression era there was this gold this gold rush town Cripple Creek that we're talking about now with the sled and that whole right. saloon scene uh, so they're identifiable to us you know so there's a certain look that if it doesn't look right, I think people understand that error. They would be able to pick that out. Was that an extra challenge for you this season? Not only dealing with a 2020 environment and the props that would go along with that, but then having to be um, consistent with this, this completely new era, new period, but one that people are going to be able to call out as, you know, there's no Starbucks cups in, you know, 19, you know, 1890 saloons, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, we, we, you know, we didn't want to have a Game of Thrones moment. Right, right, right. Um, nice. Um, yeah, I mean, again. Just more on the job studying or? <laughs> as you can tell, I, I'm all about the creative. So when I see we're starting to, you know, time travel all over the place, that's just um, another really great place for me to get creative and do research and uh you know i mean i remember when i got the the first outline for the script that had the cripple creek um stuff in it you know not knowing rhode island you know i started trying to figure out where the closest uh store was that uh that dealt in uh old coins and money oh man so that i could go out and start you know doing my research on, okay, so in that year, you know, what did paper money actually look like? Right. You know, what coins was it? Were we at Buffalo Head Nickels still, or were we in Standing Liberty? I mean, what right. What was real? JFK and, shouldn't be on any of the coinage in exactly, 1890. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you would make a, you're going to take my job before this is over, I can tell. Uh, I, I love Jeopardy, so I'm all into the esoteric. <laughs> it's just, random knowledge is so fun like I'm that. I'm just though. taking notes as you're talking. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> Alex Trebek's going to ask me this one day, and I'm going <laughs> I'm to thank Josh, Josh Meltzer when I win the big money. So, but that, but that's you know a big part of my job is finding out, you know, deciphering, reading between the lines in the script, doing my research, getting photo references, and then lots and lots of emails to to Jamie and the director. Um, production designer, you know, set decorator, costume designer, you know, uh, so we're all coordinating so that I'm not bringing something that's, you know, uh, red when the set's going to be, you know, a color that the red's not going to work with. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of, uh, it's a very, very collaborative dance that I, I love, that I love to be part of. I've seen you talk about, in other interviews, uh, getting ready for this one, I, I've seen you mention reading between the lines. For people who don't know what that means, what, what do you mean when you say read between the lines when you're going through the script? Reading between the lines um, is, uh, when you look at a script, besides the dialogue, there's um, a slug line, you know, uh, interior subway station. Uh, and then there may be a little description of, the character and what he's doing, you know, he's walks down the steps and uh, waits for the, the next subway. Well, just, ex just, you know, interior subway station reading between the lines. I know, okay, we're going to probably have a lot of background. What time of day is it? Are they going to work? Are they coming home from work? Is it lunchtime? What am I going to have to have 
ready to put in people's hands. Um, that's reading between the lines is knowing what the set is. Um, you know, if, if we're walking into uh, a hospital, you know, it may not be scripted at all about, you know, uh, it may be the only scripted thing is the principal doctor and the character that walks in to talks to that one doctor, but there's a whole world going on behind them. Right. Right. That that's reading between the lines. You're, or or, or a doctor has you know surgical mask on, but didn't start the scene with a surgical mask on. Well, yeah. Okay, he's going to have to put a surgical mask on at some point. So. Right. Well, it's like a it's your job is almost so much anticipation. You're anticipating like everything that is going to be needed and and visualized and and coordinated with all of these people. Um, it's it's pretty amazing like the amount of detail that I don't think most people realize goes into this kind of work. Um, you know what's amazing and still to this day amazes me is when you think about on any given day, I mean, on any given day, the amount of props that are needed for any show, any show in, in, a, in a day. And almost always, you'll do an entire day of shooting and all the props are there. Very rarely is there something that wasn't discussed that isn't there. Prop masters are a very, very rare breed. We are responsible for so many items on a given day. And 99% of the time, as a, as a group, we come through. You know, the camera doesn't sit there and wait for the cherry pie that was in the script that, you know, you didn't get. You know, right. you, I mean, you've got your air fryers on yep. the side. You I've guys- got my air fryers. <laughs> I can bake it right then. All right. Now, is a part of your job also continuity? Uh, like oh, working yeah. with the script supervisor and, and making sure every time you reset that the thing, the, the MacGuffin goes back to the starting point. Is, is that in your bailiwick also to make sure that, that that's yes. happening? It's yes. like those cigarettes. Uh, like like the cigarettes, yeah. And that's yeah. that's another place where, where Heidi shines. You know, she's all over the continuity. She 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 loves to uh, to make sure that everything uh, as we say matches that, you know, if in one angle you're holding something in your left hand and then we come around and do another angle that all of a sudden it hasn't transferred to your right hand <laughs> right. magically. There right. you go. Um, because then when you edit it all together, you know, you have this this thing that's bouncing back and forth and it's it's pretty noticeable. So, yeah, continuity is a huge, huge part of um, especially Heidi's job. It's not part of my job because I'm not like I said, I'm not on the set that much. Right. But for the set crew, it's a huge huge part of their job well thank her for me i have a i have mild ocd uh in, in when it comes to things like that it really drives me crazy it really takes me it out does. when it goes the <laughs> magical shifting of left to right hand kind of shit like oh, really yeah. drives her crazy. so thank her for me because i think she's doing a fantastic job <laughs> shout out to heidi whoop, 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 whoop. Heidi. um all right well let's get really specific one more time I think everybody knows at this point that my favorite prop of the season is the hourglass man's knife, that beautiful 
well, hourglass. Um, it it kind of looks like it came off of an old ship. Um, it reminds me of maps and astrolabes. So I'm just curious if you can tell us anything about how that item was conceived and and created for for uh, Mr. Schneider to uh, play with this season. That hourglass. <laughs> you, you want that to laugh? <laughs> Uh, the, the hourglass, when I read the script and I saw that this character, the hourglass man had this hourglass. Okay. One of the, so obviously I, I know that this, this character has this very unique hourglass. We're going to give it some sense of style or something, but one of the things I've learned over my years is on a show, especially like Nosferatu. Uh, where we actually track time, where episode seven ends and then episode eight picks it up usually right where we ended. So there's like no time jumps between episodes. Um, is as soon as I know what that prop is, I'm going to go talk to Jamie <laughs> and say, okay, so the hourglass man, <laughs> we see him in this episode. Do we see him again? Do we see the hourglass again? Does the hourglass have to do anything special? And that got into a whole conversation because I had this whole idea out of the outline that I read about what I, this really cool hourglass that I wanted to create. But then I found out that the hourglass has to be small enough to come out of his pocket. So was there that, ever was there ever a time challenge. that you consider maybe like a flavor flave like clock <laughs> that you know, wear around his yes. neck? You know, like glass, you know, something like that. You know. That's for the spinoff. You know, <laughs> you know, you're not going to take my job. I'm going to put you on my crew. Oh, um, I love it. Um, so as it, long as the, you become New York hour, based, I'm here. Okay, so the hourglass had to be small, and then I found out that it also needs to you know, be able to break when Maggie steps on it. Oh, no. <laughs> so um, that definitely changed everything. So then I'm starting to find all kinds of small hourglasses. And, you know, a lot of them don't have a lot of architecture or style. They're like, like small egg timers. Right. And you know, or ones that you'd use for a, a game. And I I lucked out and I found a kind of cool hourglass that had a little bit of wooden architecture around it. And then we augmented the wooden architecture because what you see is not what I bought. Um, we, we shaved away some more of the wood so you can see more of the hourglass. Oh, wow. We, we added... Uh, it didn't have a top and a bottom. We added that. Um, I think we changed the color of it also. We changed the color of the wood. Um, so it was definitely augmented. It went through a whole process because it is a very unique specialty character prop. So, but yeah, that, it was, that was a, uh, a real process for that hourglass, which, you know, it's one little hourglass. You see it, I think, three times in oh, the entire season. It's but, so great. <laughs> but it, it, there was a lot of work that went into that hourglass. 
Well, I'm grinning like a fool, so thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> Glad I could help. Uh, Josh, I'm going to read you a quote of your own self. Oh dear. Uh, yes. Because because it kind of made me really appreciate the insanity of your job, and so I want to ask you about it. Uh, back in 2012, you were given an uh, an interview to Vulture magazine, <laughs> and you said, uh, "When you turn the script page, and all of a sudden it says there's four horses riding down the street, made up of mannequin parts, and this one body that's been severed, and a leg is over here, an arm is <laughs> over there, and his head's on one body." You kind of think the writers have lost their minds. Vulture laughs. <laughs> You know, it, it struck me that so much of your job seems to kind of make the impossible possible, you know, bringing the wildest dreams of writers and directors to life. When you look back on your career, not just notes, but on your career, what what prop challenge has stumped you the most or 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 maybe even still wakes you up in cold sweats when you think back <laughs> on it now? <laughs> I'll tell you, luckily, the cold sweat days are gone. I mean, that's what. You know, um, that's what Heidi's for. I mean, she's the one dealing with it. You know, we're giving her that's, those. That's really what. Um, you know, I mean, at this point, I, I I've been a prop master almost forty years. I have over a thousand episodes of television that I've oh. mastered. Wow. Um, so wow. The, the the cold sweat days are gone, um, but in terms of a challenge. Um, I mean, the show obviously would be Dexter. I mean, because every every day there was another challenge on that show, from from you know uh, bodies to how we're um, creating um, a whole special knife set for uh, for Dexter, so that we can do completely retractable knives, so we can do a shot where you can watch the knife go into a body all the way up to the hilt. And, you know, and then the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, that was, you know, um, that was a month, a month to put that one prop together. Dexter was a dream come true. I mean, Dexter will obviously obviously be my legacy show. Uh, I mean, I'm already getting phone calls by production designers saying, are you the guy that did Dexter? So um, that's the legacy show. But yeah, I mean, in terms of one thing that stumped me, I guess the one that Probably the two things I mentioned. Dexter's, uh, I, I took, I came into Dexter the end of season one. I did the last few episodes of season one. And then I didn't do season two. I actually retired from the industry. What? Uh, and became a, a school teacher and was teaching high school theater. What? <laughs> um, because there was a, a writer's strike that was coming. Oh, yeah. So, and I had already been through a couple writer's strikes. So I retired. I had plenty of years at that point. And um, as soon as the strike was over, the producer of Dexter called me and said, you're coming back, right? And then I came back and I did season three through eight. But when I took the show over in season three, one of the directors for one of the early episodes that season said that he wanted to do a shot looking over one of the bodies that was strapped to the table, you know, cellophane wrapped to the table. And he wanted to see a knife go into the chest all the way up to the hilt. Can we do that? And of course, whenever a director or a writer or somebody asks a prop master, can you do that? It's a loaded question. 
the answer is always sure. <laughs> and then you go and you go have figure your cold it out. Sweats. Then you have your cold <laughs> and the the issue is obviously with a knife, the blades are longer than the handles. So when you're making a retractable knife, the blade can only retract so, so far, yeah. right. which is why most retractable knives look like retractable knives. So at a certain point, after a lot of cold sweats, I started thinking about it as a magic trick instead of a prop. And I ended up creating a couple different knives. And so the knife that Dexter picks up when you see it in, in, in the roll of knives and everything else, you'll notice in the handle, there's all kinds of negative space and architecture and everything else so that because when an audience member sees something, anything, until you tell them it's something else, that's what they're going to remember. So there's all this negative space in the handle. So Dexter picks up the knife and he does whatever he does with the knife and runs it across the actor's face and everything else. And then when he rears his hand back, because he's going to stab him in the chest, we always put a cut to look at the actor's face that was strapped to the table because he's scared about what's about to happen. Well, in that cut, we change the knife to a knife where the handle is actually longer than the blade and the blade retracts, but you can't see it because now Dexter's hand is around the handle so you don't know if there's negative space there or not. And so for the 45 frames or whatever it is, that that knife is gonna come down and slam into the actor's chest. You know, you have a fully retractable knife and now you, you would cut back to Michael and now I change knives back to a, the real knife and we put a little blood dripping off the end of it. And when you edit it all together, you've stabbed somebody. That is, is some magic. Hollywood hocus pocus magic. Yes, it here. is. Wow. You, Sleight you of are, hand and now. You are a sorcerer, sir. <laughs> That's I gotta amazing. Tell you, can, can you see why I love doing yeah. this? Oh my oh, God. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Totally. Uh, I, part of, Part of me is a little disappointed. It didn't involve something to do with Harry Stone and Night Court and a magic trick or Mel Torme. Uh, <laughs> a challenging thing, but but I'll take a very cool Dexter knife trick in, instead. So, I'm a big Night Court fan. I'm not fucking around. It was a it was a formative show of my life. So. I'll tell you my I'm, Mel Torme story at some point. I'm, then I'm, I'm sitting here right now, Mike, and I'm looking at the yep. nameplate that says Judge. Harold T. Stone. No! Get Stop the fuck out of here! Stop it! And, oh, my God. And, and the gavel. Oh, not because the gavel. The night, the, night that, the night that we wrapped the last episode, you got the gavel. Harry, called me over to, uh. Harry called me over to the bench, <laughs> and he signed, he signed the gavel over to me. Oh, my God. And uh, he gave me the gavel and the nameplate and the stone. Oh my God! Um, and uh, I have a I have a little prop museum in my uh, in my place of of you know Dexter's driver's license and 
Quincy's business card and stuff like that. So you could you could totally charge admission. I would literally I would yes. sign an annual. I would support like an <laughs> annual drive to go to that museum. So the Meltzer Museum, please. The Meltzer Museum of props. Take my money. <laughs> Oh oh okay, I'm going to bring us back to knives, but I promise uh, this is something that we always ask every guest who comes on the Strong Creatives Welcome podcast, mm-hmm. and that is, if you had an inscape, what would it be, and what would your knife be that you use to access it? Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean... I, 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 this will probably be the most boring answers that I'll give all night. Um, my inscape would be Christmas land because I mean, <sighs> it's just, it's so full of so many great things. I mean, you've got kids running around with weapons, you've got carnival <laughs> rides, you know, you've got arcade games. I mean, how can you not pick Christmas land? Um, and the knife, I mean, the hourglass i mean duh i mean <laughs> getting 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 someone to be able to do exactly what you want them to do i mean that's pretty cool right it's pretty cool it's pretty cool it's I think why everybody kind of mentions wanting to have the hourglass man's power whenever we talk about it <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully there's a season 3 and hopefully the hourglass man comes back and he has other hourglasses. That's been a hot debate in, yes. our, in our conversations. Uh, you know, there was no final body shot. So we're, we're fingers crossed holding out hope. You know, so. yeah, you, yeah. We, we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, like we, I think, feel like, God, like we started this conversation, uh, you know, you've worked on an eclectic amount of shows. When when you're at home and you're not working, are you more of like a who's the boss kind of guy, okay. or more of like a Dexter Nosferatu kind of guy? Uh, a o o a, or you know, how how do you, uh, come say how do you do? Yeah, I, I'm definitely much more of a uh, of a of a of a sitcom kind of person in real life. Um, I'm, I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty easygoing. I uh, love to have fun. Um, I don't really like having knives and killing people. So, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm more sitcom than uh, than Dexter. <laughs> I like that. I, I like that. So, so we've covered, uh, you know, maybe most challenging and, you know, the fantastic knife uh, tomfoolery uh, illusion trick. But what's been maybe your favorite prop that you've come up with over your career? Ooh, favorite prop. Wow. There's a lot of, a lot of episodes, so there's a lot of props. But if I had to pick a favorite prop, a favorite prop, uh, I, w- I remember I was doing growing paints back in 1986. And I saw that we were going to have Alan Hale Jr. on the show to do a cameo. And for the younger audience, uh, Alan Hale Jr. was the actor that portrayed the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Yeah, um, three-hour tour. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so on Growing Pains, Alan was going to play a cab driver. So I needed to make what's called a hack license, which is the license that sits on the the, the visor with the, the name of the, the driver and a picture and everything. So I wanted to have some fun with it because I figured this was a prop that was 
probably never going to really be seen on camera, but it needed to be there. I was a huge Gilligan Island fan when I was a kid. One of the great trivia questions for that show was, what was the skipper's real name? Do either of you know? I don't know. Okay. I can't remember. Because it was only said once. It was said in the pilot episode. And then all the years the show ran, he was called Skipper. Oh, yeah. Well, his name was Jonas Grumby. <laughs> so I created this hack license, and I got a picture of Alan as the Skipper. And then on the license, I used the name Jay Grumby. Nice. So the day comes and, you know, Alan shows up on set and we say our hellos and everything else. And we're getting ready to rehearse. And Alan um, goes and he sits in the cab. And as quick as he gets in the cab, the cab door swings open and he's holding the license. And he said, all right, who the hell did this? <laughs> brilliant. And many times over the years, I've done lots of little things like that. Over the years, I'm I'm much more proud of things like that than I am of re the really iconic props that everybody knows and you can see when you're watching the show. Sure. Right, sure. The Easter because egg is fantastic. It, yeah. It's something that really it meant something to to the actor. Yeah. So that's probably one of my one of my favorite props. That's what awesome. a special story. I love that. We're definitely also going to uh, cut in, you know, show me that smile again. Show me, show me that, that smile, smile again. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're going to cut that in right here because uh, I also love growing beans. I, I was actually gonna. Point. I was. I, I was gonna ask you. There is a very specific prop from Growing Pains. When I saw you worked on the show, I think you actually joined the very next season, though. So it wasn't an episode you did. There's an episode of Growing Pains where Mike Seaver's grandfather dies, and he begins to see him as a ghost. And there is this red towel that I, I mean, thirty something years later, I could still see the towel in my head from the episode and it's always stayed with me and it, it's just like this redded terry cloth towel but it had like a little design on it and i was going to ask you about it but i think you actually joined the very next season as the property master on that show so was that season one? Oh uh, no it was season it was the end of 86 um so if it was the end of 86 i was probably there still yeah, it was I did May, season, May 13th, 1986. I so. did seasons two and three, I think. And then they did a spinoff. They spun off um, the coach. Just the 10 uh, of us? Mike Seaver's high school gym coach. Mm -hmm. They spun a show off called Just the 10 of Us. And I moved over to go do the entire run of Just the 10 of Us. Okay, it was episode 22 of season one, this one that I'm talking about. So. Ah, okay. So, yes, I wasn't there. I took over yeah. in season two. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, when I saw it, I, the, my first thing went through, I was like, that towel just stays with me for whatever reason. I don't know, because I'm weird. But, uh, no, Just the Ten of Us. I was a huge fan of it. I, I, I was a big fan of Growing Pain, so I watched Just the Ten of Us the entire run. Josh, I've been following your career since <laughs> I was eight years old. Yeah, same here, basically. 
Josh, you have been a total blast. Um, t- tell us about any other projects you have going on outside of Nosferatu and, and where people might be able to find you or get in touch with you or, or either follow you on social media. What, what else do you have going on? I mean, I do a lot of, a lot of different things. I have a, I'm an amateur woodworker. I have a, a company called Zen Wood Designs, which has a, a Facebook uh, social media platform. And I believe it has an Instagram uh, platform nice. too. And uh, I mean, I, I'm a playwright. Um, I, I do a lot, like I said, theater is my, my first love. So I'm, I'm actually, during my quarantine days, this is day 154, I think, of my quarantine. So I've been busy writing a play that hopefully will we'll be putting up in Los Angeles sometime uh, next year when that's, we that's are awesome. able to do live theater again. Yeah. So, do you, but do yeah. you still ever get the acting bug? I'm actually going to be, uh, it's a one man show. This oh, okay. I'm wow. And, oh, and, I, wow. And, I'm the one, and I'm the one man. Nice. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So it's actually, it's a, it's a, it's a really cool piece because it's a father son love story and it's kind of my relationship with my father oh. and um, it's a lot of old Hollywood and uh, the life that he led, which was absolutely insane because uh, he worked <laughs> through the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. So. Oh, my God, the stories. The I stories know. That yeah. That, that's a whole nother podcast. Josh, <laughs> Josh, you are like just the definition of a strong creative. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. What a trip. Well, I mean, thank you both for for the show and for this uh this opportunity this has been this has been just a really really fun podcast this has been one of the best interviews i've done it's been oh. a lot of fun oh, oh well thank you what i mean you? i mean you, you you know listen we, honestly honestly if we didn't have to end at some point we could probably just go on i mean you've just opened up the golden age of hollywood i know We're ready. i'm rolling up my sleeves here so and, and, and he's a theater nerd so we you know we could yeah, keep don't on. even get me started. Yeah, we had we had we had Matea Conforti on uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was all I could do not to badger the sweet fourteen-year-old girl about her Broadway career. Be like, yeah. "Oh my God, I'm a fan of Patty Murrin. What is she like? Tell me." <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, when I saw her for the first time, I went, "Oh, I saw you and Matilda." No. Oh! <laughs> Right, right, exactly, exactly. Oh no, this is the same reaction. When I'm kind of, when I'm kind of having, you know, fan fan moments with somebody, you know, who's 14 years old, it's really sad. Oh no, brother, you are preaching to the choir. She's so talented. To the choir, she has done more. She Uh does more before breakfast than I do, literally in a week. It is exhausting. Uh, Yeah, she's pretty cool. Uh, Josh, thank you so much uh, for thank coming on Strong, Strong Creators. Welcome. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully we'll have a season three and we can have you back on and talk about more nerdy shit. So yeah, I would, thank I would you. love that for so many reasons. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fantastic. Thanks so much, Josh. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, guys, another big thank you to Josh Meltzer. Another thank you to Jonathan Langdon for kind of his two parts. You may hear from Josh again next week in our episode 10, our season finale coverage. We may have gotten some extra information from him for that episode as well. No promises, no no spoilers. 
And I just wanted to say thank you guys for listening and tuning every week to Strong Creatives. Welcome. You continue to make this one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. You know, every episode, it just rockets up the charts. And that's all because you guys tuning in and listening and hanging out with Anna and me and just kind of being silly with us. So uh, I really appreciate that. I personally very much appreciate that. So thank you so much. Yeah, definitely, everybody. Really, really amazing trip it's been, you know, doing the show and, and having you guys tune in and, and hear us just totally geeking out and having a blast. It's just been an amazing experience also, you know, getting to talk to cast and crew. Again, thank you again to Josh Meltzer and, and Jonathan Langdon. And for all of you guys, uh, if you're listening out there, please maybe give us a rating, five stars, a uh, review. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please definitely tune in for our episode 10 next week. And if you follow the show on social media, definitely hashtag that you want a season three. Anna, what are the two hashtags that they should be using in social media? All right, we're using hashtag Nosferatu S3 and hashtag Renew Nosferatu. So please get on social media, direct it at AMC, you know, wherever you're on social media, all the places you're on social media, and uh, let them know you want some merchandise too. We need some cool Nosferatu stuff. All right, guys, thanks. Thank you guys, and we'll talk to you next week for the season finale. Bye. Bye. Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com.